As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Excuse this long introduction. It's a bit different, but this preface can be skipped. You can go to the timestamp there if you want to get straight to the Bernardo Castrop and John Verveke conversation. Many of you may be new to this channel, and if so, my name is Kurt Jaimungle. I'm a filmmaker as well as I have a background in math and physics and I'm intensely interested in something called theories of everything. Now this includes the standard unified field theories that I'm sure you've heard of, but it also includes the philosophical theories of everything such as that of Carl Friston's or Donald Hoffman's or Ian McGilchrist's, each of whom I've interviewed on this channel, and the links will be in the description. This episode features two titans of their respective positions, Bernardo Castrop defending idealism, that is, the philosophical doctrine that we are all part of the same mind, or at least that all that exists are mental states rather than a material reality, whereas John Verveke takes the position of monism and naturalism. When I speak to the different prodigious interviewees on this channel, I generally ask them about their views on other intellectuals, such as Douglas Hofstetter, or what do you think of Roger Penrose's idea of orchestrated objective reduction, and so on, and I, in a tongue-in-cheek manner, call it theomachy, that is to say, battle of the gods. Now, clearly, this is facetious because it's a sin, or at least I think it's a sin to consider any human a god, but there is some truth in the sense that they're godlike in their intellectual and cognitive prowess. However, this episode is different. First of all, it's the first time I've had on two people at once, and I'm less interested in critiquing that is battling, skirmishing, than I am about getting the interviewees to understand one another's positions and constructively critique if they're going to critique at all. So I call it Theolocution, and it will likely be a new series started on this channel as well. Donald Hoffman was supposed to show up but wasn't able to, and it actually turned out wonderfully because Kastrup and Verveke had so much so much to talk about, and if you read the comments, or I'll list some of the comments right now, it seems like it's one of the best interviews or podcasts on this channel. In other news, the Patreon for this channel is going to be revamped as it stands right now. It's currently 100% for support. I do zero in terms of making a nicety like signing cards and mailing it to someone or creating a custom video. I don't have time for that. It's My time is, all, I'm, I feel already stretched to my my limits as it is, but there may be a way to integrate the work already conducted into incentives for patrons. So for example, I may be writing a book on theories of everything. I definitely take notes on the different interviewees as research, 
And what I can do is publish some of that or give some of that to the different tiers. People seem to be interested in that as well as watching or being with me while I live stream a studying session for some of these interviews. That's another incentive for a certain tier. There are other ideas I have, and I'm also interested in hearing what perks you think I should offer. But the whole point of this is that this channel is growing. It's growing. It is, it's extremely flattering that it's growing. It's a rate that I didn't think it would. It far surpasses my expectations for what people are willing to listen to. Three-hour conversation on, on meticulous technicalities and intricacies and abstruse mechanics of these different theories and theorists, while simultaneously it's taking a huge toll on me, both physically for sure, I'm exhausted much of the time, and then spiritually, yes, because it's destabilizing to have to entertain many different ideas as to what the heck reality is. And then cognitively, for sure, studying for this is difficult. It would be great if just the Patreon covered income, and then this way I could find time to spend and relax and even sleep while I sleep, but sleep well and spend time, quality time with my wife and quality time with my family. Plenty of that is mismanagement of my own time, but it's also the stress of uncertainty as to what I'm going to do for income and so on. And hopefully this would mitigate it. Another, another reason is that I'd like to invest in equipment. So for example, I was lent this green screen yesterday by someone who's been a fan of the channel for months and has been helping out with the Discord. His name is Phil Shertuk. Phil, thank you. Thank you so much, Phil. The reason for this green screen, as an aside for those interested, is that this door behind me is a washroom door. I rent a one-bedroom, one-washroom place. Now, my wife is... We're in lockdown. This is Ontario, so you can't actually leave your home, and for some jobs, you can't actually perform them. So my wife is home much of the time. And when I'm conducting these podcasts, I tell her, you have to stay in the room. You can't even get food to eat. Get your water. If you're going to get food, just bring the food into the room. And if you have to use the washroom, take these empty cups, please, because I can't have you come in the background, distract me, potentially interrupt the guest when they're right at their most profound point, and as well as she may be embarrassed because she's wearing pajamas and so on, whatever. One time I was interviewing... Bernardo Castrop, and it was supposed to be an hour to two hours long. I told her, at most, it's going to be two and a half hours. Just stay here, babe. I love you. And then it ended up going for five hours long. Now, that was great for me, great for you, great for Bernardo. We didn't even notice the time went by. You can watch that interview. It's one of the best on the channel. But then I remember reeling from that, just shivering with excitement and, and elated, going into the bedroom, opening the door, the huge smile on my face, and my wife is just livid seriously babe five hours she's holding filled multiple filled cups okay i would like that for that to not happen so i was speaking to phil shirtuk again someone who runs the discord and is helping out with this channel and he said kurt just get a green screen i can lend you one you put it here you make it look like it's this background and then she can come and go i would like to invest in equipment and gear like that so that's another reason why i'm hoping for this patreon to grow Lastly, these podcasts take days and days and days to prep for, sometimes weeks. Ian McGilchrist took weeks. Thomas Campbell took, took months, actually. Now I have Stephen Wolfram coming up, and I have Chris Langan coming up, who is the person with the highest IQ in America, at least reportedly so. Either way, Stephen Wolfram has a theory of physics that apparently derives the standard model and some non-standard 
general relativistic models, which means I have to become familiar with those before I become familiar with Stevens, and that's taking some time. Chris Langan has a cognitive theoretic model of the universe, and that's, well, it's abnormal, and so it, it's difficult to wrap one's head around, and that takes quite a bit of time. Chomsky is coming up. At the end of the month, at actually June 1st, Rupert Spira is coming up, and apparently his philosophy is so drastically different than the way that I think I'm, I'm, I'm extremely analytical. And he abjures the analytical. So I don't know how long that will take for me to wrap my head around. And at the same time, I always have an icky, slimy feeling about promoting myself or even asking people to go to the Patreon, Patreon, Patreon and support. You can even see right there where I'm stumbling over my words saying it. However, some of the Patreons, patrons already told me, Kurt, stop feeling like you're selling something. Stop feeling bad about it. Just tell people about it. I wouldn't have known about it if you didn't advertise it once, and I'm happy to support, so please let other people know. And so this is me doing that. The Patreon and the PayPal are huge, huge boons that help me consistently produce podcasts of extremely high quality with extremely high technical depth, which is different than much of the other podcasts that are out there, which at least in my opinion are watered down. Now there's nothing wrong with being watered down, especially if you want to get an overview of someone's theories. I watch them plenty, but paradoxically for me, the more watered down it is, the more dry it is. And if you look at the comments on this channel, many of you agree. And it seems to indicate there's a huge craving. There's a huge, huge craving for people interested in the recondite inner workings of a theory. And this isn't provided almost anywhere else. Please go to patreon.com slash if you'd like to support. Thank you so much and enjoy this podcast. Judging by some of the comments already, at least one commenter said that it's like the 2021 version of Sam Harris versus Jordan Peterson. That is to say, it's Bernardo Kastrup and John Verveke. Links to both of their work are in the description. Thank you. Sometimes there's a time lag and you want to interject, but you're not sure if it's going to sound rude. Just raise your finger like this. The other person will see and I may do this, you may do this. If you feel like you're looking rude, don't worry. It'll look rude for the live stream at the most, but I'll take it out when I finally edit it together. I'll just put the other person's face so you don't see that. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully we cannot be rude. That'd be good. <laughs> Choose the finger wisely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have to say I ha suffer from high blood pressure, so I take diuretics uh, also for my Meniere's. I don't know if I can go like three hours without going to the bathroom. I'll try. I haven't yeah. had much to drink this morning, but I want to forewarn. I can't guarantee that because of the no, yeah, me, go to the washroom as much as you can. Okay. You can have a cup in front of you too if you need to. <laughs> that <laughs> would be may, very rude. <laughs> while someone else is speaking, the trickle may then turn the camera to you. <laughs> the jig is up. This one is an experimental podcast because usually what I do is I do a prodigious amount of research beforehand and ask guests precise questions but this time i thought how about i get two people on and have them get to know one another which usually happens behind the closed doors of academia and have these two titans the people who are at the top of their respective academic game speak to one another converse jovially instead of trying to critique and debate and and watch them get to know get familiar with one another's ideas that's the whole point of this. I'm taking much more of a backseat than I usually would take. And I'm just facilitating questions between you both. How does that sound? 
Okay, Great. let's see how it goes. I'm Kurt Jaimongo, a filmmaker, and I run the Theories of Everything podcast. I have a background in math and physics, which is why I'm interested in theories of everything. And theories of everything to me don't just include grand unification, but also philosophical worldviews, which is why Jonathan and Bernardo are here. Jonathan, the great John Verveke, is a professor of the University of Toronto in cognitive science, and I believe he's the only professor that has a cognitive science course on Buddhism, mindfulness, and wisdom. In 2012, he gained an award called the Ranjini Ghosh Excellence in Teaching Award. And there are many more accolades I can say for John, but I'll save that because he's a towering figure and that would take quite some time. Bernardo Kastroff has a PhD in both computer science and philosophy, the latter of which is what we're interested in today. His work leads the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. I respect both of you greatly, and I want you to know that both the Bernardo interview on the channel, the Theories of Everything channel, and John, your interview on the Theories of Everything channel are some of the highest rated, if not the highest rated, of all the interviews, and I still get comments to this day saying that it's not only the best on the channel, but maybe the best interviews with you, so I am so honored that you gave your time and that that happened. Thank you so much. Thank you. Fantastic to know that's resonating so well. It's great to be here, uh, Kurt. It's been a while, and it's good to see you again. And it's a pleasure to meet you, Bernardo. My pleasure, John. Okay, just so you know, the audience for this podcast is generally colossally clever. So if you have to use abstruse terminology that you don't think ordinarily people would understand, it's okay. Speak as if you're behind the academic doors. This is what this is. It's an experiment. And if you have to make logical, deductive steps quickly, go ahead, do so. It doesn't matter. People can rewind. People can pause. I'll start with philosophically. How would you all, John, how would you describe yourself? So there's obviously isms like you're a realist, you're a logical positivist, you're a materialist, whatever it may be. Why don't you give the audience an idea as to where you're coming from? And then Bernardo, you'll do the same. Um, sure. Uh, if you want my metaphysical stance, I don't know if that's the most important aspect of my work, but maybe that's the arena we're playing in right now. Um, so I would describe myself as a naturalist and to try and make that clear, I reject, uh, the term that people often apply to me, materialist. I don't think that all of reality is, is just matter. Um, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I know anybody who actually takes that stance. Um, and so, you know, like most physicalists, I think that we have to talk about other real entities like time, space, cause. Um, structural, functional organizations of things, information, etc. And I think they're all good arguments for that. And then I'm not—I'm a non-reductive physicalist, which means um, I think there's genuine emergence. Um, I actually am a, a sort of sort of heretical. I think there's also emanation as well as emergence, uh, but that we could get into that later. Um, and wh what I mean by that is I don't think it's fair to say or correct to say that the only thing that really exists is the very bottom level of our ontology, maybe quantum probability waves or something like that. I think that this level at which we do science must really exist for us, for science to really exist and for us to draw the conclusions about the reference of science, such as uh, conclusions about the quantum domain or the, or, or the, uh, the relativistic domain. So that's why I call myself a naturalist. So a naturalist says that the ontology is going to be consistent with the natural sciences, uh, biology, chemistry, uh, physics, um, 
and perhaps uh, hopefully down the road cognitive science, uh, but it is not going to be reducible to them. And so it's a, it's a, it's a quite uh, layered and rich uh, ontology. And then within it, um, I happen to hold a position called deep continuity, which means this is from work by Francisco Varela, Evan Thompson, a lot of people in what's called 4E cognitive science or third wave cognitive science, that there's a deep continuity between the principles that regulate and generate uh, cognition and consciousness and those that regulate and generate living systems. So I, I take it uh, after a lot of argument that in order to be a cognitive thing, you have to also be a living thing. Um, and then and then there is also deep continuity between living things that are autopoetic, self-making, and self-organizing systems like, like tornadoes and uh, eddies within streams and things like that. Um, so it's a, a naturalism with deep continuity is, um, for me, uh, the ontology that I think um, uh, I find most plausible, convergent, and the one that best helps to explain how science itself is possible. Um, and so it's, a, it's also an ontology that's deeply influenced uh, by Neoplatonism, because Neoplatonism tends to emphasize building your ontology off the, the prima facie datum from which you try to build your ontology is intelligibility, uh, the, the existence of intelligibility, uh, which is presupposed by science. So I think that's it. I hope that was not too coarse of a nutshell, uh, but that's where, I, that's where I come from. Bernardo? I think like John, I'm a naturalist as well. Um, whatever is not part of nature, even if it exists, it escapes so much the realm of what is relevant that um, may not be interesting to look at it. Unlike John, I am a reductionist. Um, I'm probably an extreme reductionist. And the reason I am that is I think there are very fundamental, even insoluble problems that you face if your reduction base has more than one thing because then you get you, you run into the interaction problem. Um, you have issues uh, of uh, parsimony. Do you really need to postulate uh, many things in your reduction base? And large reduction bases, they don't explain anything. They just avoid the need for explanation by just pronouncing a number of things to be primitives, uh, dispensing with explanation. So I am a reductionist, even though my re the one element in my reduction base is different from uh, the elements in the reduction base of mainstream materialism today. Uh, today, I think the mainstream view would be that uh, all quantum fields are part uh, of the reduction base. There is yet no unified field theory, so we have a reduction base with multiple uh, fields. Now, I, I'm, I don't go for that. Um, I am critical of strong emergence. I think uh, uh, what we might call a weak emergence, what, what David Chalmers calls a weak emergence, uh, obviously exists. Sand dunes emerge out of sand grains and wind. Um, so we know that these things happen. Uh, uh, ice crystals emerge out of water and temperature variations. Um, but strong emergence as an explanation, for instance, for how, how uh, phenomenal consciousness could arise from uh, arrangements of matter, I think uh, at best it's an appeal to a complete unknown 
and, and probably it's a flat-out appeal to magic. It's a way to put a label on something that is actually incoherent. Uh, we label it a problem and we say, well, one day we will explain it, but um, <laughs> we are just insisting on a, on a path that is leading nowhere. So to summarize it all, um, my position is what I like to call uh, analytic idealism. It's an idealist philosophy that postulates that at the bottom level of nature there is only mind, not your mind alone, not my mind alone, but only mind stuff uh, at the bottom of nature. Um, and it's a mix between uh, objective and subjective idealism. I can go more into that uh, to explain it more later. Um, yeah, that, I think that, that summarizes it. John, what occurs to you when you hear that? What questions uh, pop up? Um, I guess the, 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 maybe there's a, a question around the, the notion of strong emergence. Um, I'm actually proposing, it depends what you mean by strong emergence. I mean, strong emergence is the claim that there's not going to be any explanatory relationship between the levels. I take it that what we, we say happens in weak emergence, like how water emerges out of hydrogen and oxygen is because we have some, have some account. Um, and so, and then the idea is, you know, differences of degree, uh, if, uh, if there are enough of them become differences in kind, um, uh, because then you not only get water emerging and then you get water ha has a particular set of relationships to organisms such that it's a nutrient, uh, which and, and there's no such thing as a nutrient in physics. It doesn't belong in the physics ontology, um, things like that. And so I, I think the position that I'm arguing for is you know, uh, is a form of uh, what would technically be called weak emergence, because I do think there is emerging, <laughs> no pun intended, an ongoing explanation. Um, so, for example, um, we used to have a position um, that looked like strong emergence for life, vitalism. Uh, most people in biology, myself included, reject that, because now we have a very complicated, uh, but nevertheless, um, I think you could rightly say version of weak emergence of life uh, from inorganic material. And so, um, and I think we're getting a similar thing happening uh, with the uh, uh, weak emergence of intelligence out of non-intelligent things. Um, and so I think given the uh, explanatory base provided by living things that weakly emerge and intelligent things that weakly emerge, we have Pretty much we need what we need in order to generate a lot of the theoretical explanation for a lot of consciousness, uh, which is where this um, uh, uh, hangs in. Uh, namely, that I think that we many people are already coming, converging, this is some of the stuff I've worked on, towards a weak emergence explanation of the function of consciousness. And that's becoming less problematic. And that was even somewhat excluded in Chalmers' distinction around the hard problem. And I think as we get a richer and richer account of the functionality, we will get a richer and richer account of the nature of consciousness, the phenomenal aspects of it. Um, so I, I think I would ultimately say that I'm not defending a strong emergence position. I'm defending a very um, complicated, but nevertheless, the complication isn't the issue here. Um, the issue is whether or not I'm advocating for a non-explanatory non relationship in the emergence. Um, now, is there a degree to which this is promissory? Uh, well, everybody's position right now is promissory uh, because the only way we wouldn't have a promissory position is if we had our completed science, which, so it, what we have to ask about is, is, is it a plausible promise? And of course, well, we might uh, likely disagree on that, uh, but um, 
that's that that would be in my initial response john you have an articulated notion of what it means to be plausible do you mind explaining that first yeah so this is some of the work i do outside of these thorny issues of ontology um, because i'm very interested in um trying to uh under, well to understand understanding and, and how understanding differs from knowledge when the, one of the differences is people generally talk about uh, knowledge in terms of evidence that justifies where in terms uh, where understanding is uh, relevance uh, that basically signifies uh, and there's an important difference there and so one way of understanding uh, this is uh, to that when people have a particular kind of understanding they give it a normative status when they say something's reasonable or makes good sense or they'll even say it's plausible and they don't mean it as a synonym for probable they just means it oh it's reasonable that makes good sense that you know and so when you take a look at what's going on there there seems to be a bunch of factors this is based on a lot of other people's work on plausibility and i, I won't try and cite a lot of people here for brevity's sake uh, one is that we uh, the idea that we want uh, a lot of independent lines of converging evidence. Um, the idea being here, this gives what Rescher calls trustworthiness. If my particular theoretical construct comes out of independent lines of argument and evidence, that reduces the chance that it was produced by theoretical bias or empirical bias, etc. For example, that's why even infants prefer information that is multisensory. So they will, they will give priority to information that comes through eyesight and hearing and touch than over just eyesight, um, you know, ceteris paribus, uh, because it's much more likely to be real than a subjective illusion, for example. So that's trustworthiness. You want your construct to have some structural, functional organization, some way in which it's structured. It's not just a list of features, but a way it has a structure that indicates its function and then its function of course, is explicable in terms of its structure. And then you want elegance. You want that that construct will map into many new domains, find problems, formulate problems that hasn't been found before, and uh, make them potentially uh, solvable. So this is sort of elegance. So you have convergence into something like an, a cognitive optimal grip, elegance out, and then you want to balance between them. So if you propose something that will explain a lot of things and looks elegant, but isn't very trustworthy, well, that's when something's far-fetched. Um, you can have the opposite. You can have something that's very trustworthy, but has no elegance to it, and that's trivial. And then you can do various kinds of slips between them. You can do what Dennett calls a deepity, where you equivocate, or you can do a Mott and Bailey thing. Uh, so when I'm talking about plausibility, I'm, I'm talking about a, a, yeah, a standard we have to use. We can't rely on, because... For example, um, I can't test all possible hypotheses. The, the, number, the logical number of those is indefinitely large. So if I'm a scientist, I have to select the plausible ones. And then when I'm testing it, I have to control for confounds. Do I control for all possible alternative explanations? No, that's impossible. That's combinatorial explosive. So I select the plausible ones that I control for. Then I get my data, and I have to derive my interpretations from it. Do I derive all logically possible implications? No, that's combinatorial explosive. So I have to, I make use of the most plausible um, implications. So plausibility is before, during, and after empirical investigation. So it's irremovable. Now the thing about it is it's, 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 it's pragmatic, it's defeasible, uh, because what it does is it just gives you the normativity of taking something seriously. 
we have, that's not a sufficient normativity for a knowledge claim, but it is a necessary normativity for getting your knowledge acquisition processes going. That's what I mean by plausibility. Bernardo, I'm sure thoughts present themselves to you. Please. Oh, there's a lot to comment on. Um, look, I think uh, um, there is a heart of objectivity in our notion, in the concept of plausibility. And I think John has elaborated on it uh, uh, very well. Uh, but in practice, uh, a lot of what we call plausibility is a psychosocial phenomenon. Uh, mm -hmm. Why? Because the interpretation of data is, is, is never neutral. I mean, we know that from, from Thomas Kuhn, uh, that uh, the very interpretation of data is already paradigm laden or theory uh, laden. If you look to the history of science, there was a point a couple of hundred years ago in which phlogiston was perfectly plausible, an invisible elastic substance that connected shaft to uh, an ember rod and accounted for what we today call uh, electrostatic uh, attraction. Um, there was a point in time in which Newton's gravitational force, an invisible force that uh, acted uh, uh, instantly and at a distance between bodies, celestial bodies, was considered utterly implausible. In fact, in, in France, it took like 50 years for the French to stop laughing uh, at Newton. Um, and then later on, uh, uh, we figured that uh, we can laugh at Newton again because there is no such invisible force. It's the, the fabric of space-time that bends and curves and, and accounts then for what we call gravitation. Um, so plausibility, I think it's something we have to take with a grain of salt because it is culturally manufacturable. And we have been manufacturing plausibility at the highest rate uh, in history lately. For instance, we are very busy uh, in the mainstream media manufacturing plausibility for the outright incoherent notion that you can upload your consciousness into a computer, which betrays all kinds of misunderstandings of, uh, about computers <laughs> and about consciousness and, and neuroscience. Uh, an outright ridiculous idea that uh, now a lot of highly educated people with PhDs considered plausible because our cultural milieu renders it to us uh, as if uh, it were plausible. And since knowledge is now so broad that every single person can only know a tiny bit of what there is to know, we buy into it. It's very difficult to have an overview of all the salient and relevant aspects of knowledge to pass judgment on that. So I would be careful with plausibility in science already. But when it comes to consciousness, you know, it's not just science, because science is a study of nature's behavior, not a study of what nature is in and of itself. Um, what nature is, I would say, is irrelevant to science, because science makes predictions about how nature will behave. What, uh, what an experiment confirms or disproves is the behavioral predictions of a certain model of nature's behavior. Uh, and that's what experiment uh, answers. Experiments produces an answer in the form of a certain thing that nature does, a certain behavior. Now, of course, uh, if you have a metaphysics, a theory of what nature is, that makes itself predictions that are contradicted by science, then you have to discard that metaphysics. So science informs philosophy or metaphysics, but it doesn't settle philosophical questions. And when it comes to consciousness, I don't think it settles the question at all. I think what's happening today is we think that um, strong emergence is a plausible account for consciousness because this notion has been culturally manufactured. It's not grounded in objective reasoning or evidence. Um, because I think what happened at first was that 
scientists started from where we all start, from conscious experience, the experience of the world out there, the colors, the melodies, the flavors, the scents uh, that are around us. And then they figured out that it was very useful to model those qualities, conscious qualities of the world with numbers, which could then be tied up in equations. And, and that was very useful to describe the world. So carrying a heavy piece of luggage is described with 50 kilos and holding a feather is described with 50 grams. And now you have a quantitative way of dealing with these relative differences and, and making predictive models in the form of equations that relate all these quantities together. These are all descriptions of the qualities. But at some point, something very strange happened around the time of Descartes and the conflict between science and the church and that attempt to find space for, for both without the church having to burn scientists alive. Um, the question was sort of settled by saying, okay, there is uh, uh, mind, the mental sphere, uh, that's for the church, and then the church was very happy because from the church's perspe church perspective, that was all that existed, right? And then we said, and the descriptions now are not only a description of the contents of mind, the descriptions exist in and of themselves, and moreover, they precede the contents of mind. And that's when the conceptual idea of matter arose. We said that those kilos, uh, uh, hertz, uh, uh, you know, length, weight, or spin, momentum, electric charge, mass, amplitude, frequency, we said those things aren't just descriptions. Those things have standalone existence, and they somehow generate the world of experience, the colors we see, the sense we feel. Uh, it's like trying to pull uh, the, ter the territory out of the map because, you know, we have the territory, we described it, we created the map, and then we said the map precedes the territory, it exists before the territory, the description exists before the thing described, first incoherent move, second incoherent move, somehow consciousness, the qualities of experience arise out of that. It's like pulling the territory out of the map. And then we face an insoluble problem, the hard problem of consciousness. But because we've manufactured now a century and a half uh, uh, of plausibility for this idea that matter precedes consciousness, we, instead of realizing that the hard problem of consciousness is not a problem at all, it's a reduction to absurdity of the materialist postulates, it's just incoherent. The message is backtrack, try another, another path because this one goes nowhere. Instead of admitting that, we don't throw away a century and a half of manufactured plausibility, we label it a problem and we say one day we will solve it and we'll call it strong emergency or whatever. One day we will account for it um, in order to sort of preserve <laughs> what we've built so far. Okay, John, first, do you mind recapitulating what your understanding of what Bernardo said is and then seeing if it matches? Um, I think there's a difference between how I was trying to use plausibility and uh, he is. I'm not equating plausibility to every claim to plausibility any more than I would equate, uh, you know, equate the claim to validity to validity. Uh, many people claim things are uh, plausible for reasons that Bernardo rightly pointed out, we have a particular paradigm. Uh, but I would point out that what he's offering to challenge that is a plausibility argument. He can't make it one of deductive certainty. Uh, we, we've sort of given up on the idea that we can produce a deductively certain metaphysics, at least as far as I can tell. Um, and so he's doing what he's doing is presenting, and, he, and, and he's good at it. I'm not denying that. He's, he's good at presenting something that's very reasonable. 
He draws independent lines of argument and independent lines of evidence together. So I'm talking about plausibility in the normative sense. I'm not talking about it uh, in what, simply what people claim. And what I'm claiming is in that normative sense, that's ultimately what we have. This is sort of a, a pragmatist stance. Um, and the fact that, and he's invoking it, Laudan's, you know, pessimistic history of science, right, shows that most of our theories turn out to be false. So it couldn't have been truth that was guiding us. It had to be something like plausibility and probability that were guiding us. And that's what I think we should we should sort of say we're doing. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I don't think he's not offering a plausible argument. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, so I, I, I understand that we should periodically step back and criticize our paradigms. Um, but I would point out to him that that means there's something we appeal to above and beyond our paradigmatic standards in order to make such challenges and hopefully uh, get them understood and accepted. I, uh, I reject, I don't know if he does too, I reject sort of the, uh, a pure Cunian response that it's just happenstance and historical circumstance why you know people adopt new positions. I do think they do something that is trans-paradigmatic, um, but I don't think it's Cartesian certainty because uh, I've never been convinced that such a thing exists. So that's what I'm trying to invoke when I'm invoking plausibility. Um, I think, and I think metaphysics, and, and I think even philosophy at large, is the art of disciplined and, you know, uh, and justifiable plausibility, something like that. Uh, so there, uh, that, that's that. Um, now, um, I don't know what to do about some of the historical, because Bernardo said a lot. Um, I happen to think that the... The, the point he's pointing to happens a lot earlier. I think it happens around Scotus. Yes. Okay. Yes. From now on, from this point forward, I'm going to take uh, um, wait, wait, the wait, wait, back seat. I'm, I'm very curious about your point about Scotus. I would like to, to continue to hear that. You're bringing that back to the, what, 10th century? 9th century? Uh, no, 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 no. Scotus uh, is post-Aquinas. So we're talking uh, like the 13th, 14th century. We're talking okay. about Scotus and Ockham. Um, that's where I think uh, the change is made. Uh, because what happens with Scotus is you have the idea of the universal, the, the being is univocal, that whenever we say being, we're saying this, it's the same for everything. Uh, and that sort of uh, demolishes platonic realism. Uh, well, demolishes if you think Scotus is right. And then Occam's nominalism uh, 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 brings out the idea that there aren't any actual structures in reality, because uh, uh, all that really exists are bare particulars, bare individuals. And I think that's what severs uh, the idea that there is something, it, it destroys the, conf, uh, the conformity theory, that there is something identical uh, in being between, between the knower and the known. So, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the idea is when I know something in the older theory, there is some shared structural functional organization in my mind and a thing that is constitutive of the reality of the thing. And so there is a, con and I think it's <clears throat> with Scotus, and with Occam, uh, and then you get the idea of knowledge not as a conforming to reality, but as coherence of propositions held somewhere inside. And I think that starts the severing in an important way. And so I think the important move is, you know, uh, a shift out of what I think, I think it's plausible to say, you know, ancient realism, uh, ancient philosophy, right up until and including Aquinas is ultimately realistic in its notion. Um, and I think the severing from realism precedes the emergence of matter as a substantial thing. Um, and so I, I, that's where I would start to talk about 
uh, wh where the main, main, main issues are. Um, now, I think what you're talking about does happen with, with Descartes, but it's also prefigured and made possible uh, by, you know, the ideas of individual conscience uh, with Luther and things like that separate and, and give a kind of internal authority uh, separate from, you know, demands placed on you by an external authority, whether that's the whether that's the real world or God. So I think there's a well, there's a sequence of stages that unfold. And I think the uh, and I think the issue about consciousness is down the road, uh, downstream from these earlier uh, sort of decisions about well, realism versus versus something like, um, uh, I don't know what to call it initially, uh, but it, uh, you know, because it's nominalism, uh, which is a minimalized realism. And then, uh, and then you get a flat ontology with Scotus, because all the all the idea of real differences in being disappear. Um, and so and that and the and the and the, and the I irony of that is, um, if you if you posit any kind of reductionism, you are actually invoking levels of being again um, and saying things like there are more real levels than other levels, which actually undermines the Scottish position that started the whole transition in a powerful way. So we're actually in a really, I think, within this paradigm, if you'll allow me, we're actually in a kind of incoherent place where we want to say we want to we, we're holding to a view that came out of the idea that there there's no real differences in levels of being but are, now we are we are moving towards positions in which differences of being are taken to be sort of a you know a plausible thing so people will regularly say things like well tables don't really exist and you know all this you know love doesn't really exist all that's at the bottom and so that's to invoke um, a platonic distinction between levels of being and so we, we're actually in an incoherent place with respect to our notion of being, I would argue right now. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Okay. When I said that I'm going to take a backseat, what I mean is no longer from this point forward, John, do you refer to Bernardo as he? Because that means you're talking to me about Bernardo. You just say you, because now you're speaking <laughs> okay. to Bernardo and Bernardo same. So now you say you. So John, so-and-so. Bernardo, take it away. And John, if okay. you need to interject, you go ahead. 
Right. John, there, there are many points, I think, uh, uh, that we have in common based on what you just said. I'm, I'm trying to make a mental list uh, of those points. Um, I'm not for total relativism either. Mm. Uh, I think mm. there are good objective epistemic criteria uh, that we can follow in order to have a higher degree of certainty or a lower degree of uncertainty about our postulates uh, and inferences, I would go as far as to uh, submit to you that um, Kuhn himself wasn't uh, a relativist in the way he's often yeah. portrayed to be. And he yeah. was very frustrated, in fact, for the fact that he was portrayed uh, that way. I, would I agree refer, with that. Yeah, I, agree I would that. refer you to an interview done uh, with, uh, with Kuhn by my friend John Horgan from Scientific American back yeah, in 96, yeah. I think, um, one, in the final years of, uh, of Kuhn's life. Um, another thing that I, that I think we have in common is that um, I'm not postulates that we can have inferential certainty here. Uh, I don't think, you know, apes evolved on planet, planet Earth uh, in, a, in a corner of a typical galaxy somewhere in the universe have the cognitive apparatus to capture with certainty the mm -hmm. salient aspects of what's going on. Of course not. Uh, reality is filtered through our cognition and our cognition has evolved to allow us to escape tigers and find fruit and hunt bison. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. that's basically what we evolved to do. Uh, even our symbolic thinking is what? 30, 50,000 years old? I mean, to characterize this as the blink of an, of an eye in the history of the Earth is to, is to vastly overestimate <laughs> the amount of time since we've evolved uh, uh, that capability. Um, and third, I also think that um, there are guidelines that are more or less uh, objective. Uh, I'm not sort of surrendering, surrendering everything to paradigmatic subjectivity. Mm -hmm. um, the role you attribute to a more objective notion of plausibility, I would attribute to conceptual parsimony because it, it's countable, you know. How many different kinds of things are you postulating to account for observations? Uh, and, and although it's not written or etched in stone in nature that the best explanation is always the most conceptually parsimonious, it may not be. Um, if we abandon parsimony as an epistemic guideline, we open the doors to all kinds of nonsense. Um, for instance, there is an example I often like to use. If I wake up in the morning and I see strange footprints in my backyard, I can offer two explanations. Explanation A, a burglar went around checked my door, figured that it's well secure, and gave up and went away. Explanation two, aliens landed on my neighbor's backyard, stole his shoes, came for a stroll in my backyard, left the footprints behind, went back, boarded their spaceship, and, and flew back to yeah. the Pleiades. Now, neither theory can be disproved on the basis of the data available. Both account for the data, but one postulates a lot less than the other. One postulates a burglar, a human being of the kind we know exists. The other postulates spaceships, alien races, uh, illogical strolls, uh, illogical shoe robbery. Uh, so <laughs> if, if we abandon parsimony um, because we know it's not etched in stone, if we abandon that, we are lost. So I think that's one, one fairly objective 
criterion for, for guiding our epistemology. If you start postulating too many things um, and interactions between too many things or appealing to too many unknowns, uh, it, it doesn't go uh, uh, anywhere or it, it's not reliable. Um, now, finally, uh, regarding the question of consciousness, you, you said um, we would always have to have a promissory theory when it comes mm -hmm. to consciousness. I would submit to you that that's only true if you're trying to reduce consciousness to something that isn't consciousness. Then whatever theory you come up will be promissory because we have no idea how that reduction can take place. That's why we talk about strong emergency. It's a way to not have to make the reduction explicit. Uh, but you see, every theory of nature needs to have at least one thing in the reduction base. You can't explain one thing in terms of another forever. Uh, uh, otherwise, eventually, you will beg the question. Your reasoning will be circular at some point. So you have to always have that one thing, at least one thing in the reduction base for which you have no explanation. In other words, uh, you can't explain that one thing in terms of anything else. That can still be your best theory of nature because so long as you can explain everything else in terms of that one thing, then you're fine because you always need at least one thing in the reduction base. I would offer to you that if you put consciousness as the one thing in that reduction base, um, you eliminate the hard problem of consciousness because you're no longer trying to reduce it. The promissory notes are off the table. Your challenge now is to explain then the, the phenomenality, <laughs> our phenomen, uh, the, our inner phenomenal life and uh, the empirical observations of the world outside, which are always qualitative ultimately, uh, in terms of that one thing in the reduction base. That is the challenge. But then I would submit to you that that challenge is of a whole other level and character than trying to reduce consciousness. Uh, it entails no hard problems. It entails no appeals to unknowns. You can do that by using phenomena that you already know occur in nature. So I think it's much more promising to go that way. And then there is no promissory notes. So I would respond to that. I mean, parsimony is a difficult thing. I mean, um, it depends on how you individuate your entities. And there's no canonical way of individuating entities. And the attempt to find conceptual primitives, I think, has been a largely failed project. So I, the number of entities depend on it. Right? How I individuate them. Is consciousness one thing or many things? How do you know that? How do you determine that? And how do you determine that in a reliable way? And, and if you're talking about reduction, are, do you have one thing or, do you, or, or, or is everything an illusion above that one thing? And then you do have a hard problem of how is it we're doing science at these illusory levels to point to the bottom level but that we're claiming is the only thing that really exists. And if you say, well, no, I don't mean they don't they're all illusions, they also exist, then I posit to you that you do have a complex ontology and you do have multiple things. I mean, so, so I don't even know what we're referring to when we're individuating this thing you're calling consciousness. Um, is it one thing? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems to me that there's aspects of my consciousness that are um, qualitative in nature there's aspects of my, of my conscious life that seem to require relationship to something that's unconscious. 
my memories come and go. Um, I wake up, I fall asleep. Um, has there actually been one consciousness through all this time or multiple consciousnesses to my consciousness disappear? I mean, and um, I seem to be able to have uh, experiences where I, I have sort of a dual consciousness where I'm, a, I'm sort of aware of my own consciousness, but I'm aware of the world as well. Is that one consciousness or two? I, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be obtuse here. I, 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 the invocation of parsimony, it seems to me, to, is to, I think it's really an invocation of elegance uh, because most people qualify, even Occam did, parsimony is you reduce to the minimum needed to, to generate your explanation. Um, and that depends also, as many people have pointed out, on how we individuate things. Right? And, and we can't make it syntactic because all I can do is I can just replace every relation with a higher order noun or a lower order noun. You know, is baseball one thing or many things? How do we count it? Well, it's made up, uh, well, it's made up of many people. Oh, so it's made up of, oh, uh, many, like, whoa. Is a person one thing? Is consciousness one thing? Like, so uh, I, I think invoking the notion of parsimony is ultimately uh, something that we do heuristically and pragmatically. I don't think we have an algorithmic formal account. I mean, the, the accounts that we have that approach that, like Golmogorov sim uh, uh, simplicity, um, uh, prove to be computationally impractable. Uh, so they, they can't be what we're using when we invoke parsimony. Uh, and other than that, I don't know any formalization of simplicity that isn't question begging. Um, now we all use it, Bernardo. I'm not I'm not denying that. But what I'm saying is, I, I think the the appeal to it as uh, as an absolute uh, methodological principle that we it just runs it objectively. I, I'm not convinced by that argument. Um, now, uh, to the point about consciousness, again. Uh, maybe, maybe, and this is what I need to get is, and I, I'm, I'm also conscious, pun intended, uh, that we're trying to make this dialogical. Uh, but we disagree, and uh, and uh, and we we have to be honest about our disagreements. But I don't want to I don't want to come off as like imperious, or I, I want to come off as receptive and listening to you. Uh, not I don't want to come off. I want to be that. That's what I aspire to. Uh, so um, uh, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and I'll try and. Uh, I'll try and uh, live this as enthusiasm rather than anything aggressive or anything like that, because I don't want to be doing that. You're, um, so I'm not quite clear what you're pointing to when you say, like, let, 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 let's take uh, sort of a standier, standard human thing. I'm actually not aware of my consciousness. I'm aware of things consciously, but I'm not aware of a thing, an entity uh, consciousness. That's Hume um, right there. Hume versus yeah, Barclay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 the pro, and, the, and they're both empiricists. They're, they're, so that's why I'm doing that, because they're, they, they agree on the same methodological principles, as far as I can tell, right? Um, and so... John, give... Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. John, give, let's have some shorter bursts of speech and then just hand off to the other, other person. Maybe one question or two questions and two sure. statements. Well, I okay, spoke very we're, long, we're, so maybe you should have a chance to comment on everything I said. Well, no, I'm willing. I'm willing to do. I'll, I'll just make those two points. The points is, I think that um, I think, I, and I, I don't think we actually ever go for simplicity. I think we go for elegance, balanced by trustworthiness. Um, I think that, and and that's. Uh, um, uh, and so I think parsimony is 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 a problematic notion. Um, 
Uh, yeah, but then trustworthiness is even more problematic because what is trustworthy? But, but, but I, I get your point. Um, and so, and then my other point was, um, uh, since we're counting an, a, a single entity, uh, there is a sort of, you know, the human problems as well. Uh, are, 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 we talk, are we equating experience to consciousness? Because uh, that's a problematic move. Um, and are you really making consciousness? Uh, like it seems to me you have a double in consciousness. You have consciousness as experienced and consciousness as experiencer. And therefore you're not actually getting the one thing at the bottom. Um, and, that, and, and then all of this over here the, the experiencer is something that's not within conscious, but I'm inferring, I'm inferring it from my experience. And then if I'm willing to infer things outside of my consciousness, well, then why not be a realist? That's, I guess that's what it sort of comes to. Okay. Um, I, will, I want to start with a point where I agree with you, but uh, just with a preamble first. Everything you said is directly applicable as a criticism of physicalism and any other yeah. ontology. So you are not sort of singling out idealism. You are criticizing your own position uh, yes. with the arguments you, you just put on the table. Um, there is one thing where we agree, and I think a lot of people miss on it. Our carving out the world into things is purely nominal. There is no ontic criterion for saying the car ends here and here begins the road or here the river ends and the ocean begins we we, we separate the universe into things out of convenience it's it's arbitrary and 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 nominal because if you say well i would define a car in terms of functionality so if i need the spark plugs then for the car to move then the spark plugs, spark, spark plugs are part of the car. Well, mm. then you need the road because without the road for the tires to mm. grip, you don't move. Mm. And you need mm. the air to enable combustion. And you need the gravity of the earth to pull the car towards the road. I mean, soon you have the entire universe. And now with, with quantum entanglement, uh, uh, you literally have the entire universe. So partitioning the inanimate universe into things is, is completely nominal. I do think we have an ontic criterion for saying that uh, we end here. Like uh, if you shoot a bullet through the chair where I'm sitting, I will not feel it. But if you shoot a bullet through my belly, I will feel it. If a photon hits my retina, I see it. If it hits the wall behind me, I don't see it. So there is a ontic criterion for saying here we as, you know, our inner lives can be delimited in physical space at the boundaries of our body. And that's not merely nominal. It's not arbitrary because in some, in some cases I feel, in other cases I don't feel. Now, um, where do I want to go with this? I lost my train of thought where I was going with this, but it was very important what I, what I wanted to tell you. Um, John, then do you want to step in? Can, can, you, can you just uh, summarize briefly again? Uh, oh, 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 yeah, I remember. I remember. Um, the, the idea of parsimony and, and how do you say uh, whether consciousness is more than one thing and, and, and Hume's critique uh, of, of Berkeley. So for the sake of the audience, uh, Berkeley said, well, everything is in the mind. And Hume's critique was to ask, well, what is the mind? I'm not aware of a mind. I am aware of different experiences. So mm -hmm. how can you, can you pull a, a psyche, a mind, a soul, out of the variety of experiences I have? And back in the day, that seemed to have been a strong enough 
criticism back in the 18th century, but it misses out on a, on a very clear uh, intuition that we all have. Although the qualities of experiences can vary wildly, uh, um, the quality of having a bellyache is totally different from the quality of falling in love, all these things are still qualitative. They are experiential. They are not theoretical abstractions. They are not something that can be exhaustively described through quantities or physical parameters. They are qualitative. So I would offer to you the following definition of consciousness, which is consistent with the idea that consciousness is the one uh, member of the reduction base. Mind or consciousness, uh, which I will use interchangeably, is that whose excitations are experiences. And if you define it that way, then there is only the experiencer. And experiences are different patterns of excitation of the experiencer. So there is nothing to experience but the experiencer in the same sense that there is nothing to a ripple but the lake where it ripples. Uh, we use different words because it's convenient uh, uh, in dialogue to speak of ripples instead of patterns of movement of the lake. But we have to keep in mind that uh, all along there is only the lake. So all along there is only subjectivity. There is only the experiencer. And experiences are just patterns of excitation of the experiencer. This has another advantage, which it eliminates any interaction problem between experience and the experiencer because there is no such a thing as an experience outside the experiencer. There is only the experiencer. Um, and so, there so is sorry, a lot- what, what is the experiencer above and beyond the set of experiences? Like, why are they not just a, an atomic sequence of experiences, a, a sequence of atomic experiences? That would lead you to all kinds of problems. For instance, uh, what binds these experiences together? Why do we have the inner feeling that these experiences are being had by us as a subjective point of view into a field of phenomenality? Right, now, and, and so, so I, I answer a problem by inferring a relation, right? And, and then that relation and, and the mechanisms by which that relation works, how things are bound together is actually not something I'm consciously aware of. Let me give you a concrete example. I mean, I'm hearing your words and I'm getting ideas out of that. Um, and that's binding them together into an integrated proposition in my mind. I have no idea how I'm doing that. My introspective awareness of that gives me no account. In fact, it's, and, and any common sense intuitions I have have largely turned out to be wrong. So most of the processing that is allowing me to do the binding is not a processing within my consciousness. It's a processing that makes my consciousness possible. Right? I mean, that's the Kantian argument, right? The Kantian argument is you, you have to propose some sort of transcendental binding, but it's, tra it's precisely transcendental. You argue for it as that which grounds and makes possible the experience, not as something that's found within the experience. Uh, here, uh, this has a lot to do with one point you made before, uh, which is you said that a lot of my conscious experiences seem to be anchored in something that is not uh, consciousness, something that's sort of operating in the dark in the background. I, I find that more generic criticism to hold better than what you just said. I would say, how do you know that there is binding? Well, that binding is itself an experience. It is itself a pattern of excitation of your subjectivity that arises maybe as an interference pattern. Wait, 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 wait. but <laughs> I, I, I'm not asking how I know the binding is there. I'm asking what it is that exists in order to explain the binding. 
and those aren't the same thing, right? I, I don't uh, think I, the entity you're looking for is necessary. The, the notion of binding is itself a pattern of excitation of consciousness because the binding, so far as you can speak of it, it is some kind of experience you're having. No, no, the binding that, so my, I have a conscious experience of you making sense, but I don't have a conscious experience of the binding of those sounds into meaning that then make, and you know, I, 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 and I, like, I have no conscious experience of acquiring English, but here it is, and I have it, right? How is that bound to me, right? I, I, I want to answer this. But I, yeah, I, want, I wanted to answer a better example because I think here you are looking for an entity that doesn't need to be there. I think there is a very natural flow of experience, which we call understanding. But I agree with you that you are appealing to a lot of background stuff to enable that conscious binding. You're appealing to knowledge that you've had before and which is no longer in the screen of your memory being relived uh, right now. Um, and look, there, there is over a hundred years 150 years now, if you count far back enough, of depth psychology, which sort of has accumulated evidence for parts of the psyche that we cannot report on. Feelings that we have and we can't report on. Memories that we have and we can't report on. And which may lead to the notion that, okay, there is something other than consciousness. Because if my consciousness is operating on the basis of something that I can't consciously report, then there is something other than consciousness. I would dispute that based on the modern uh, differentiation between consciousness and metaconsciousness, between conscious experience and conscious metacognition. I think what we report is an expression of what we what we are metacognizant of, the contents of our metaconsciousness, the experiences we have and know that we have. But in the background, uh, uh, stuff that we cannot report because we don't know that we are experiencing that stuff, it is still consciousness. Um, and we have everyday examples to show that you're breathing right now. You're always conscious of your breathing, but only right now, because I mentioned it, did you, uh, did you, did you become meta-conscious of your breathing because you placed your, your attention on it, you, you, you reflected that experience of breathing. So the stuff in the background that you refer to, uh, I would say it's all experiences which are not available to your introspection right now for you to report because they are obfuscated by the limited contents of your meta-consciousness, or they are dissociated or inferentially isolated. We know dissociation exists and it's for real since the advent of neuroimaging in the 21st century. Um, so I, I, I do think that Hume's critique of uh, Barclay uh, uh, was a straw man because he wanted to produce a thing, a psyche, a soul, you don't need that. All you need is a field of subjectivity whose excitations are our experiences. And now in the 21st century, we now have a century of examples in physics in which we've done exactly that. We've reduced now elementary subatomic particles to the patterns of excitation of a quantum field and going to M theory, this, is even, this even goes into the direction of unification theory. There's, a, there's an enormous tradition about reducing things towards excitations of uh, extended uh, uh, um, fields, so to say. Okay. John looks like he's bubbling with rage, so please. <laughs> Not it, bubbling with rage. Uh, uh, yeah, get I it mean, all out, John. No, I, mean, I, I want to get it all out because I, I want to I, I make space. Uh, so you, you're dividing consciousness into metaconsciousness and things in the background that I can't get access to because I currently don't have knowledge. 
And it sounds to me like you have parts of my consciousness that are not aware of each other, are not conscious of each other. So again, now you have a multiple entity, as far as I can no, see. ontologically is only one thing. It's consciousness. Why? But why? Because it's That's... only one kind of stuff, and there are dynamisms within this consciousness. No, 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 no. We're not talking. No, no. We're not talking about just one kind of stuff. We're talking about the the entity. No, no. We were talking about the number of entities we propose in our explanation in order to generate our explanations. That's what we were talking about. And to say I'm proposing one kind of stuff is to beg the question because then you're invoking the parsimony and that's the very thing that I'm pointing to, which is, it seems to me you're, you're multiplying your entities in order to try and generate your explanation, as you should, as you should. I mean, because- no, I deny that. I, I, I thought okay, by appealing okay. to feuds, I, I had countered that, but okay, go ahead. Well, okay, but the, well, so you've got, you've got things in, in my consciousness, my introspective consciousness that are, are nevertheless, so there seems to be a distinction. There seems to be a distinction between what's in my consciousness and what's available to my consciousness via metaconsciousness. So metaconsciousness must have a functionality different than from the rest of consciousness to explain the fact that it's limited in some fashion. Yes? Yeah. So in terms of the functionality, I can count different things there. Yes? No. No, because Why not? consciousness and metaconsciousness are both consciousness ontologically. Do they operate the same way according to the same principles and the same functions? Does an electron operate the same way as a quark? Both are parts of a field. Um, so so I don't parts, think yes. You, you can have one thing manifest different patterns of behavior or to function in different ways without requiring that thing to be many things. Ontologically, it's still one thing with multiple different patterns but, but of behavior. What, in a non-question begging manner, what makes it one thing? It's experiential. But it's precisely not because my meta-consciousness can't experience parts of my consciousness. No, your meta-consciousness cannot report parts of your consciousness to yourself. But my point is exactly that what is not reported is still experiential, just as your breathing is experiential when you're but not you, reporting to yourself, I am breathing. How is that different from your experience being experiential and I can't, and I'm not aware of it right now? I would postulate dissociation as something that exists in nature. We not understand it fully well, but we know it exists and it could account for the appearance of there being multiple minds instead of one. And the, the study of dissociative identity disorder now, it has advanced so much that we know sure. it's literally I, blinding. Sure, and, 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 but we, we also have you know, accounts of the dissociation um, in terms of trauma. I mean, there's serious disanalogies, because uh, notice what you tend to invoke when you do that. You have now three entities, you have the meta-consciousness that can't report to myself, what's going on in my consciousness. Um, and that seems to me to be, and, and that's the kind of machinery you typically invoke, at least in the psychological discussions of, right, uh, of dissociation. Like I get dissociation from this part, uh, this part of my mind, from this part of my mind in order to protect myself. To pre this part is protected from trauma from that part, et cetera. Um, and so it now sounds like you've got metaconsciousness that can't fully report to the self what's going on in consciousness. Both are consciousness. Meta-consciousness is a particular configuration of consciousness. Well, what is the self it's reporting to? It's the one field of, sub of subjectivity where all these experiences are, are happening. Some of them are reflected and therefore can be reported. Other experiences are not reflected. 
But what, but I'm asking, what is the reporting going to? If it's going back to the field and metaconsciousness is in the field, why is, why is metaconsciousness unaware of it? Because it's not reporting to itself all, all the patterns of excitation that are happening in the field because it folds in upon itself in such a way that it focuses the ability to, to focus, to, 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 to reflect on a subset of what's going on. And that's presumably very important for survival. So it's reporting to itself that it doesn't have everything. Is, is that? Well, that it's not reporting to itself some of the experiences it is having. I mean, from psychology, we know this happens. I mean, we, we don't need to go very far, especially men uh, are not able to report even to themselves a lot of the emotions that they are actually having, having and which is impacting their behavior. I mean, the therapy rooms, world, the world over are filled sure. with... But, okay, but let's turn just... this into a therapy room for a second. <laughs> right now we're talking about the disagreements. And in previous podcasts, what I like to refer to is something called theomachy, which is a battle of the gods. And it's tongue in cheek because obviously you're not gods, but intellectually you're, intellectually you're, you're, let's say, mini daemons, whatever you want to call it. And so I like to say that this is theomachy. And I wanted this to be more of a theolocution. In fact, I was going to coin that term because you have dialogos for Veiki. Sure. So sure. this is a theolocution. And I don't care if it turns into theomachy. It's actually entertaining, much like the debate that was about truth between Sam Harris and Peterson. And maybe this is going to become one of those where we hammer down specifically onto one instead of the broad array of subjects, which I don't mind. So to turn it into a bit of a therapeutic session, why don't you first each say something about the other's point of view that you agree with or find interesting, and then you can go and battle it out once more. Uh, well, I mean, I think we are battling it out precisely because we are respecting each other and we're trying to do science. And the problem here is science is a little bit different configured. Uh, I mean, science in the sense of scientia, uh, not in the sense of just empirical science, that we're trying to do science here. And, and therefore, uh, we're, we're doing the, the kind of thing you do in science, which is pit arguments and evidence against each other. Um, and, and, I, and, and, and I think that's sort of appropriate within the scientific discourse. Uh, if we move to more you know, existentially encompassing issues, I think then we, we shouldn't stay in the, in the realm of debate. Uh, we should move into dialogos. Um, there's a lot I respect. Uh, first of all, uh, I wouldn't be giving my time and effort to, and this is not meant to be left-handed, uh, to Bernardo if I didn't think he was articulating his position very well. Um, and so um, I, I do want to acknowledge that. And I, and I do think that there is, I would agree with him. I hope this is, comes off as uh, an appropriate compliment. I think most of the versions of materialism that are prevalent even within some of the cognitive science community, especially within neuroscience. Neuroscientists, for example, uh, the vast majority of them uh, uh, adopt, uh, uh, you know, a strong identity theory that I think would just be devastated by the kinds of arguments that Bernardo was bringing up. Um, uh, and so um, that's why I don't, that, that's because of the sophistication of these arguments and, and their plausibility, I'll use that if you'll allow me, uh, that I think uh, any, a hardline materialism like that is, is not a viable position. Um, so I like that about what he's doing. I like that he is um, trying to give a larger place 
to our phenomenology uh, than is typically given in a lot of the analytic discourse around consciousness and the mind-body problem. And that's a bit of a disjunct between the continental and the Anglo and American tradition. And I like that. That's why I've been trying to shift into the phenomenological with him right now um, and, and play there because I think that's, a, I think that's an important. And um, so that's, those are two, two or three things I really like. I like the rigor. Um, I think the arguments against many versions and again, this isn't a trivial thing to say. I just pointed out that many neuroscientists, I think, adopt the position that his his arguments would be very cutting against. And I, I want to acknowledge that. And I think that's important. And to, to not say that's important, I think is disingenuous. Um, and I do like the fact that um, he is trying to bridge between the continental and the Anglo-American tradition by integrating an analytic argument with, with much tighter phenomenological investigation. I think that's all those are... I think methodologically, that's a very important thing to do. Bernardo. And I don't have anything against heated debate in the least. That is actually what goes on behind closed doors in academia. And I, no, but I, 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 want, I just want to thank you for doing that. I, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's important to, to periodically do what you just did, which is to step back and regroup and see what, I mean, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a sterile thing if we're not capable of listening and potentially learning from each other. Okay, so Bernardo. Well, I think uh, John's uh, focus on what he calls the meaning crisis is the single most important uh, and most devastating problem uh, that we as a species uh, uh, have uh, today. And by highlighting that and, and offering fairly practical ways of addressing that problem, avenues for trying to get out of it by restoring the role of myth, uh, by taking um, our phenomenology, our experiential world uh, seriously and not dismissing mm. it as just an epiphenomenon. I think that attempt to solve the biggest problem we face today as a species, that alone makes him and his work one of the most important people alive today, I think. Well, thank you, Bernardo. That's very high praise. Um, um, it's precisely because I second of, that. Well, I think many of the people in the chat second that, but they would also credit you with that too, Bernardo. I, I yeah, I, I wanted to I wanted to return the compliment. I think trying to get, we, I think we agree on this. We may not agree where we end, but we agree that the meeting crisis is not going to be solved at sort of the political uh, market level. It's it, it it goes down to our fundamental ontology. And it deals with fundamental aspects of our ontology, like subjectivity and objectivity, and that how, how meaning is somehow bound up with those um, and of the sense of self. And I think we agree on that. Uh, it seems to me we agree on that. And you're Absolutely. nodding. So, yeah. And so I think uh, in, in that sense, we're both very critical of um, a lot of what I think are misplaced and sometimes distracting attempts to deal with the meaning crisis uh, that do not wrestle with these deep problems. Now, I'm not. I, I'm not saying, and I don't think Bernardo's saying everybody has to be, you know, an academic philosopher to wrestle with the meaning crisis. But I do think if we want to, if we want to hone whatever ecologies of practices we come up with to address the meaning crisis into a worldview, uh, we have to do something to our current worldview to get us to the place where we have a worldview that can properly home, rehome um, the 
the ecologies of practices and the experience of sacredness. And I think in that we also agree. I, I am uh, so I want to be I want to be clear about something here. Um, um, I, I I'm not happy. I thought I said this, but I don't think I emphasize. I'm not. I'm not trying to countenance sort of the standard uh, scientific worldview model. I'm willing to, uh, you know, change my ontology quite a bit. Um, I tried to convey that with some of the things I've said, uh, and so I think um, the disagreement it might be more about what are the changes and how far should the changes go. Um, so um, I think I think what Bernardo's doing is important. And I do. I, I would not want anything I'm saying be, to be taken as meaning people should not wrestle seriously with his work. I don't. I'm not trying to imply that at all. Neither. All neither right, did I interpret you <laughs> that way, yeah, uh, John? Uh, can I? Can I continue? Please do. Okay. Uh, look, I, I do think that. Um, our mainstream ontology plays a role in this, and I don't think it's a positive role, but I'm, I'm also quick to admit that it is one role. It's not the whole story. There, there are yeah. other things going on. And I think another enormous thing that you point out uh, when you say that we overemphasize propositional knowledge, yes. knowledge of facts as distinct from wisdom, which is very hard to define, although you, you, you elaborate extensively on how we actually can get a grip on what wisdom is. But uh, what is immediately clear is that it entails a lot, a lot more than propositional yes. uh, knowledge. Yes. And we live in a society in which the people we take direction from today, the spokespeople of science we see on TV often, um, they are, and I'm sorry if I go too far in this characterization, but they are very often psychically unbalanced. Um, one psychic function is taken as the only one that matters. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a kind of analytic, rational, conceptual mm -hmm. thinking. And that is taken as the only thing that is trustworthy. And they are challenged when it comes to the richness of all the other psychic functions, like yes. intuition, appreciation for art, sense perception, you know, being grounded yeah. in your senses yeah. as opposed yeah. to abstraction. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't see it, we take them as the new wise man. And, uh, and they are people who have large chunks of the human psyche amputated <laughs> from them. Uh, yeah. And they have become our wise men. I, I, I call it, um, the uh, idolatry of nerds and the word nerd is a is appropriate uh, i think uh, to be used here and i think it's tragic that uh, we've been trying to replace uh, wisdom with pure extensive encyclopedic propositional knowledge as if the latter were a, a substitute for the former and as if doing this could be justified merely by the lack of absolute uh, certainty that uh, yeah, that yeah. you can attach to wisdom. As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring 
during vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers trial pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H. L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. Yeah, I think that's very well said, uh, what you've said there, Bernardo. I agree. Um, and I mean, I've argued for it extensively, um, which is part of what I, what I what was, a, was trying to point to where I said, I appreciate you trying to bring in a phenomenological richness uh, to this, uh, the, the discussion we were previously engaged in. Uh, yeah, I do think that uh, the the recognition of the significance and importance um, in two directions, both, um, you know, in terms of our ontology, uh, the significance of the non-propositional ways of knowing and ways of being uh, in the psyche, I think. And then also the the, the increasing evidence that it's it's those non-propositional aspects of the psyche and ways of knowing that contribute the most to meaning in, in a sense of meaning in life. Um, and I think um, uh, that tyranny of the propositional or the tyranny of the ideology of the nerds um, is not only limiting our capacity to try and understand these phenomena uh, and thereby create a worldview to which we can belong because we don't belong to the curled, cur- current worldview. Um, that's, I think, uh, something we would also agree on, I think. Um, uh, the, uh, but also the, 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 the just the fact that it puts at it puts individuals existentially um, at at risk of of all of the deleterious effects of suffering a paucity of meaning in their life and the symptomology of that I think is very pervasive in our culture. Okay, um, let's get to the disagreements again. <laughs> okay, well I think, I think we it's, were talking about the multiplicity of consciousness, or is it one? Well, I just wanted to point out, though, that that, um, I, and I think this is important. This is very much like an in-family kind of disagreement. Uh, that I, I I don't want to presume. I just met Bernardo, but uh, Bernardo, I would say to you, uh, you know, everything you're saying here um, leads me to really appreciate the motivation you're bringing to these more sort of technical, ontological disagreements we're having. And I want to, I just wanted to express that appreciation before we return back to potential debate, because I think that's important. I mean, for me, um, uh, sorry, I don't want to make this sound pragmatic. One of the things, not on, not the only thing, obviously there's their own internal epistemic uh, success, but one of the things that would could potentially move me more towards your ontology is if I could see how it might more readily um, address some of the difficulties that I'm trying to address with my ontology with respect to the meaning crisis. Um, and so uh, that'd be something perhaps we could also discuss uh, somewhere along the way. Can, can you mention two or three uh, concrete points? Um, so, uh, so one of the things that I've been trying to do 
and this was something that you admitted in your ontology, and then I got, I, sort of, I noted it, but I sort of got sidetracked in being uh, heated, I guess. Uh, uh, you, admo you admitted sort of, even, even within consciousness, processes of, of filtering. Um, and you, you, you probably know that uh, the core of my work on like intelligence as distinct from consciousness, although I think these ultimately are related, has to do with this issue that I call relevance realization, which is of all of the information available to me, I can't continue and, and right and of all the information available to me in my memory and of all the possible sequences of operations, that's also combinatorial explosive. So yet moment by moment, I'm somehow realizing, focusing on what's relevant, basically intelligently ignoring, and it's a constitutive part of my intelligence, most of that information. That is not any algorithmic process. And it, it, is, also, it is always prey to the deleterious effects of the bias. So the various things that make me adaptive at this, make me subject to bias, the self-deception. Um, and we have moments where that, that self-correction comes out when we have aha moments and insight. And so I happen to think that that, that relevance realization um, is a way in which we're dynamically coupled to the world. Um, I can give that argument in more depth later, but I'm just trying to give it just here. And I think that's that, that, that underwrites our cognitive agency, but we also experience that connectedness as deeply rewarding. And that reward is different from the reward of like a pleasure. It's the reward that we call meaning in life, which is also just different from subjective well-being. And so I think our meaning, our, our, that sense, that positive rewarding sense of meaning in life. And man, will people do a lot for meaning in life. They will, they, will they will sacrifice a lot of pleasure and a lot of contentment in order to get meaning in life. And they reliably do that, for example, when they have a kid because pleasure and subjective well-being go down dramatically, but meaning in life go up significantly. Absolutely. And so, yeah. So I, th I think that that connectedness is central uh, to, uh, to meaning in, in life. And then I, tr I use basically an evolutionary model of trying to explain what that connectedness is like. There's something in our brain, and no, that's the wrong way of putting it. There's something in the relationship between the brain and the world that is strongly analogous uh, to biological adaptation, biological adaptivity. Uh, and, and then there's something analogous to how that evolves in a self-organizing fashion that we call intelligence. And that helps me to explain a lot of the progress I see within artificial intelligence, a lot of the convergence I see within cognitive science and cognitive psychology. And, and so I tend to see that in, in that way. And I'm wondering if, well, I, I wanna make it a, a genuine question. Is there a way in which the, your ontology would speak to that in a way that might be uh, particularly helpful? I mean, I, I'm not trying to put you in a corner. If it doesn't, I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, well, there it's false. I'm no, not it doing does, that. It does. It, it, it's, an, it's an open question. It does. I mean, that, that's my motivation for, for doing what I do. I, I, I yeah. don't do this just because I want to win an academic argument in a world of abstractions and, and academic journals. Yeah, I totally um, get that. Yeah, I do it because I think it makes a difference. I mean, we, it's not even clear to us anymore that uh, the story we tell ourselves about what we are and what the world is and our role in it 
is the key source of meaning in our lives. Why are we not aware of this anymore? And I think that's because of fluid compensation, to use a, a technical term in psychology. We are mm. fluid compensating all over the place. We've replaced uh, authentic sources of meaning with um, uh, self-validation, with the idea of leaving work behind that survives us, uh, with uh, differentiating ourselves as part of an elite group. Mm -hmm. This, this mm -hmm. happens a lot among scientists. Mm -hmm. So even mm -hmm. if we adopt a worldview that is flat and bleak, as I would say, mainstream physicalism is not, not perhaps, well, certainly not your version of physicalism, but the mainstream physicalist view that consciousness doesn't even really exist, yeah. that is so flat and meaning draining and bleak. Um, but we, we don't notice that because we find ways to fluid compensate and find yeah. other sources of meaning. I mean, when we killed God in the second half of the 19th century, we were quick to erect uh, a, another edifice of meaning giving. And, and that has evolved now, and I'll link that to artificial intelligence, which you mentioned as well, that has evolved now into singularitarianism, which is a purely physicalist religion, which postulates that if we create yeah, yeah. a AI that can build a better version of itself faster than we could, then that would uh, uh, accelerate the evolution of AI exponentially, and then we would create a de facto god who would then take care of us, <laughs> like we take yeah. care of animals yeah. in a zoo. I mean, <laughs> that's the religious impulse, uh, the search for meaning right there. We never abandon that search for meaning, even though we fluid compensate and we find sort of decoy targets uh, uh, for it. But if you ask me honestly, where do I think it went wrong? I think it went wrong the moment we started telling ourselves and believing that the world we see is all there is to this story that uh, the world is its own meaning as opposed to being an image of something else deeper, as opposed to Can being you... how the world as it is in itself presents itself to us. But there is this extra dimension of depth and meaning. The images that we call the world are pointing to something beyond themselves. Are pointing Can you explain to what you mean? Meaning to, Sorry to uh, interject. Can you explain what you mean when you say the world is it, itself is meaning? Uh, today, under a physicalist ontology, um, matter is uh, all there is. So if you have a material world around you, then there is no extra dimension of depth to that world. That world is all there is. So whatever meaning it has, it is that meaning because it's not pointing at anything else. It's not representing anything else because it's all there is. And this is a notion that is today called uh, naive realism in philosophy. Um, in, we know from science and philosophy that this is absolutely and categorically wrong because one, evolution wouldn't have given us a transparent windscreen to see the world as it actually is. Evolution doesn't do that. Evolution equips us to survive. So evolution would, ha would have given us a dashboard of dials, not a transparent windscreen into the world. We also know from hardcore neuroscience that if our inner uh, representational states, you know, our perceptions, if those states mirrored the states of the world as it is in itself, our inner states would be too dispersed and we would basically dissolve into an entropic soup we wouldn't be able to maintain our structural mm -hmm. and dynamical mm -hmm. integrity. So we have to encode 
the information we have about the world in an inferential manner in order to maintain our physical integrity. So we know that the world as it is in itself is not what we see or even measure through instrumentation, because even measurement follows the paradigm uh, of perception. We, you have to see the output of a measurement instrument, or you have to see a histogram on the screen. I mean, when I was at CERN, that was my life. It was looking at histograms and calling them particles. Um, the world as it is in itself is not available to our direct inspection. The only way to know it as it is in itself is to be it. And Kant already said that and Schopenhauer echoed that. Mm. Um, so if we recover, if we put back into our explicit metaconscious awareness that this is what's going on, then the world regains a, a, a dimension of depth and mystery. And your life in it now has a meaning, not only the world as it is in itself uh, um, is the ultimate meaning, which you have to interpret out of how the world presents itself to you, out of the dials that you have, that evolution has given you. Uh, even your role in it is now mysterious because you are in the world, even though you don't see it as it is in itself, you know that you are in it. Uh, and that dimension of mystery and meaning, I think, is the so um, losing contact with that dimension is one of the key sources of the meaning crisis. And one way to recover that is to take myth, myth seriously, not literally, but seriously. And we've lost the art of knowing how to do this. So uh, I think that was fantastic and beautifully said. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think, uh, well, I've already said I'm a, I, I think that flat ontologies are incoherent theoretically, and I think they, they make their adherents engage in ongoing performative contradiction uh, all the time, uh, in which, like you said, the scientist uh, espouses a meaningless universe as he desperate or he or she desperately tries to climb to the top of whatever status hierarchy they belong to. And that's all kinds of performative contradiction. So I think there's incoherence and there's performative contradiction. So I, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that flat ontologies um, I, I think are, are viable. And then I think the idea of recovering, I like what you said, a depth dimension uh, to it, uh, uh, to our ontology is important. Um, so I, 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 I tend to think that that depth dimension uh, comes in when we in, in, invoke, well, kind of what I was saying before, um, that, like, I, I'm sorry, I'm just worried about, I don't want to sound overly Kantian because I don't, I, I disagree with Kant's idea that we have no access. Uh, I disagree uh, with that too, by the way, but um, yeah. okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah, okay, thank you for that, thank you for that. And so let's, let that, so let's say we always have filtered access or something like that, and, and, and I think that, that follows directly. I think that's something that I, uh, I argue for and perhaps even presuppose in the account of relevance realization that I just uh, talked about. I, and by the way, I would argue this is the hardest pro this is the hardest problem in artificial intelligence, almost as hard as the hard problem of consciousness. I think relevance is a very hard problem. Um, and I do happen to think the two problems are related and maybe we could talk about that at some point. Uh, but um, I do think that reality in that sense is other than it's the way, see, the obviousness of our experience is exactly what we need to explain 
rather than take as the basis for our explanation. And I think by the time we've gotten to the obviousness of experience, we've, uh, uh, you know, our brain mind and its interaction with our brain body world, right? Interaction has, has so um, filtered things that we have avoided the combinatorially explosive nature of reality itself. Um, and so that's why, and, I, and I've been trying to make an argument, and this is a bit of a side thing, of reconfiguring the sense of what you call mystery, and I, and I use that term. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm deeply influenced by Gabriel Marcel's work on ontological mystery. That a mystery is different from a, in a problem, we frame it and then we can bring clarity to it. In a mystery, we find that the framing itself is problematic and we keep doing this uh, right? and we keep expanding the frames and then we realize, oh shit, it's bigger than I could possibly accommodate. And we get experiences of awe, um, which are tremendously efficacious for transforming individuals at the kind of level we're talking about conducive to the cultivation of virtue and wisdom um, and doing experimental work on that right now. And so I, I, I try to think, and maybe this goes back to some of the points I've made earlier. I try to recon, reconceive of that mystery and sacredness, not as completion or perfection, uh, because, but in sense as, as an inexhaustibleness. There, uh, and so there's a bit of a Neoplatonic spin on this. There's an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility for us. Um, uh, so we, like, as we uncover more, uh, as uh, right in the trajectory into the mystery, it, it seems to have an underlying order to it, an underlying pattern and, and intelligibility to it, which does not does not does not close off the fact that there's going to be more that's going to surprise us. Um, and so I tend to think of the sacredness as being exactly that horizon of intelligibility, where we can look back and see all the fields of intelligibility that have arisen for us, but we have a tremendous sense of what we're nowhere near and we'll never be anywhere near exhausting this. It's kind of, it's kind of like, what, is, is it Schelling's? The finite always longing for the infinite. Uh, that's the sense of sacredness in some of the early uh, post-Kantian. Uh, that's, that's what I'm trying to argue for now. And I think part of the thing that I'm critical of, of the Cartesian paradigm, which also gets taken into uh, the, the, the modernity of the interpretation of religion, is this idea of certainty and completion and closure um, a, a, as the things that we are most seeking. And I don't think that is the case. I think that humans want, I mean, what we know from the meaning in life literature is human beings want to be connected to something larger than themselves and to matter to it, uh, to fit to it rather than have it, it fit to them. And so, um, sorry, I've, I've spoken too long. Uh, that, that's my attempt to, attempt to to say something I think may be convergent with you. Jung uh, said uh, the only important question is whether we are related to something infinite or not. And he nailed it. Yeah, 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 right yeah. yeah, yeah. And the way we long for it and the way that has a normative impact uh, on um, uh, the way we live our lives. And I think, again, we agree on this, that we are, we are, we both, if you'll allow me to speak for you, we're both sort of distressed by the, the, well, I'll use it in the psychological sense, maybe maybe in, in your ontological, but the dissociation between the worldview people espouse and believe in and the way they're trying to live their lives. And that disjunction comes, that dissociation comes at terrible cost, terrible cost. I mean, uh, the, uh, and, the, and the way social media is, is 
doing exactly the opposite of what it promised. It's accelerating yeah. all of this rather than alleviating it in any function because it's not getting at, at the root of the problem. There, I'll be quiet. Bernardo, so you can say some. I'm, say, I'm say delighted. Some. I can I can listen to you for a long time <laughs> because it is this subject is very close to my heart. I wanted to ask you a question, but before I do that, let uh, just a quick clarification. Um, I, I also am not with Kant that uh, we can never have any sort of access to the noumen. I think he went too far. I yeah, think yeah. through perception we cannot have access to the noumena. But the key insight that he missed and Schopenhauer added uh, very quickly after Kant was that uh, we are our own noumena. So through introspection, I can access my noumena. And since I'm part of the world, I can make educated inferences about the noumena out there because I'm also sort of material uh, made of matter, at least as far as perception goes. Uh, yeah. uh, so if the matter in my body is the representation of my will, then I can conclude the world as it is in itself is also something like uh, the will. So I think there is a channel to the noumen and that's introspection. And then that's what the world's religious traditions have been saying all along. But the question I wanted to ask you is this, I, I, I have some uh, uh, clinical psychologists that I count as uh, friends and we have discussions uh, now and then. And the subject that always comes is, especially when you have a depth psychologist, a psychologist yeah, oriented yeah. to the depth as opposed to yeah. you know, behaviorism or anything like this, or, or anyway. Um, the, the question I always ask is, if the task is to help your patient recover meaning, can that be done in the absence of a certain ontological position? Can you be ontologically neutral? And uh, because psychologists talk about giving meaning, uh, uh, maybe it's yeah. a it's literal translation from Dutch, but uh, I think it works in English as well. How do you give meaning? And 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 my feeling is that if if I am a patient and I have done therapy, by the way, uh, I I always come out of that with the feeling it's like I'm trying to cheat myself because either meaning is really there or it's not, and my giving meaning to it is some kind of self-deception. It doesn't work yeah. out for me. So yeah. do you think we can solve the meaning crisis without addressing ontology head on? Um, so first of all, I'm gonna, I wanna riff on the first thing you said as a way of preparing for my answer to the second thing. So I think the key and the most foundational, the key to the most foundational kind of knowing, which I call participatory knowing, which I take from ultimately inspired by Plato, um, but you, but you can see it either. You can see it in all kinds of Platonists, and I count Jung as a Platonist. He's, I think, he's basically the Plato of the inner psyche, and the archetypes are the forms. And I think you, I can make a good argument for that. Um, and that's why he was attracted to Neoplatonism and Gnosticism, things like that. That's that, but that's an exegetical claim. Uh, but uh, but um, right, but it, it's this notion, uh, and you, and the reason why I think it's important is I see convergence from. As you said, other religious traditions were like so. When I, I'm, I, I read a lot of the Kyoto school, Nishitani, Nishida, um, uh, Maso Abe, uh, you know, uh, Suzuki, uh, things like that, and, and what was going on there. And so the notion that comes out is like from these two traditions, and they converge on this idea of uh, that unless you that at bottom, and I can make a more long argument for this, but I think you'll get the gist of it. If I reject skepticism, if I reject an absolute skepticism, I have to rely on that kind of participatory knowing that I, I know it because I am it, right? And that and because I am it and that that part of the world is also it, uh, we participate in the same thing. That that is how that is how 
uh, my mind and the world touch. I know this might step on a couple of your your toes, no. but, I, that, but that's my way of talking right now. Um, and, and so the idea that um, there's a kind of knowing that is simultaneously how I know myself, and I don't mean my autobiography, I mean how I ontically and even ontologically know myself, that is necessarily bound up with how I know the world. When I see Plato, and I, I, you know, this means I, I reject sort of standard academic interpretations of Plato, I see Plato, no, no that's, not, that's not true, some, there's a growing group of people that would agree with this interpretation of Plato, so um, I see Plato as basically the person who sort of proposed that, uh, that at the core of his argument is that idea of participation ultimately grounds us. And then that leads me to, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the second point you asked. Do I think we can address the meaning crisis without fundamentally addressing our ontology? So there's, there's two ways of asking that question. And since you brought it up in the context of clinical psychology, it's important to distinguish. Like I wouldn't want to claim that everybody has to do fundamental ontology in order to get alleviation uh, from anxiety or despair or depression or loneliness because they, I would say there's a level at which they, they do need an ecology of practices. Simply changing their beliefs is radically insufficient. That's why people go into therapy. Many people I think live, live and, and this is not meant to be any kind of elitist insult, but they live very pragmatically. If they've got an ecology of practices that's working, that's it, that's good, right? So in that sense, I don't think everybody has to do it. But in the deeper sense, do they, are they ultimately dependent on scientists and philosophers finding a way to ground and legitimate that ecology of practices in a, a worldview? Yeah. I think they do, because I think our worldview, this is I'm deeply influenced by Clifford Geertz, our worldview is our meta-meaning system. Uh, I'm not equating our worldview completely with our ontology, but I'm saying our worldview is our sort of, our, 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 shared, our shared ontology, our shared commitment, if you'll allow me that, okay? And so, and I think our worldview is our meta-meaning system. It is that, it is not itself a meaning system. It is that which, like you said, at the bottom, makes possible all the other meaning systems by giving a participatory relationship, a pattern of co-identification between the agents and what I call, what Chris and I in our book and Philip and I call the agent in the arena. The world becomes a place that is shaped either physically or mentally to fit me and by which I physically, and that also includes technology and or mentally shape myself to the world so that we have a participatory relation. So there are are affordances uh, for behavior. Um, and I think for me, it, there has to be people out there doing that. There has to be people who, who are saying the current worldview does not home us. I mean, we don't belong in our worldview. We, we, like, there's no place for us in it. Um, and that means ultimately everything we're doing with our ecologies and practices doesn't fit in that worldview. And like I say, most people don't have to solve that problem, but that problem cannot remain unsolved, at least in the sense of seriously, plausibly addressed. So I hope that was an answer to your question. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I am with you. I, I, I even agree with you. And, and actually I have no problem admitting to this and reinforcing this. I don't think any conceptual buy-in into a specific ontology will solve anybody's psychological problems. Um, because conceptual understanding is not embodied 
it stays yes. rotating right. somewhere in the head and it doesn't yeah. go down into yeah. you know, your, your emotional life. I do think, though, that we are in a culture where the, the intellect is the bouncer of the heart. So it, even if you could have... Excuse me, did you say bouncer? Like The like bouncer. A, yeah, like, like, at a, a, like at a bar? Like yeah, a, yeah, a club bouncer. bouncer. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great, great. I just want to make sure I heard you correct. That's a great metaphor. I love that. Yeah, the intellect is the bouncer of the heart. So even in situations where somebody would have a transformative experience or a transformative insight, they don't give themselves intellectual permission to yeah. take it on board, to even perceive it, let alone take it seriously. And, and when the insight sort of muscles in, like the experience of awe that uh, occasionally yeah. we have, uh, it comes in, we have the awe, but 15 minutes later, you're saying, ah, that's nothing. Emotions are just a side effect of evolutionarily encoded uh, behavioral patterns driven by physiology. And I'm not, off it goes. It, it doesn't sink in. So I, I, I think that although an ontology would not solve the problem, it literally opens the door for whatever solution uh, there might be. Because right now, there is a closed door and a very big muscleful bouncer <laughs> at the door. Yeah that's preventing us from relating with more richness and depth to ourselves in the world. I would agree with that, Bernardo. Uh, uh, although I, I, I guess I, I, think it, I think of it a little bit more like a bifurcation point. I think there are many people who do exactly what you say, the dismissive distractive response. However, I've met, and you know, even within, within ex, an experimental paradigm, because I've done experiments on people, mystical experience and stuff like that. I've met people who have the opposite, so they have a very powerful, and there's literature to back me up on what I'm saying. They have these powerful experiences and they precisely can't dismiss them. There's something in, and, and so I call this ontonormativity. So often, like we, people do dismiss many of their altered states of consciousness. And again, that's adaptive and many of them should be dismissed perhaps. Uh, but what's really interesting is people, and it looks to be about 30 to 40% of the population, which is not insignificant, have these experiences and they, and they do this. They don't say, oh, it doesn't fit in with this worldview, therefore it's not real. They do the opposite. They say, that's really real and therefore there's something wrong with this. That happens too. And that happened, again, it's not majority, but 30 to 40% is not insignificant. That's a, that's a lot of people. Um, and, and, yeah. and, 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 then, and, and then, but what typically happens though, is they, they go looking for some guidance and they can't find it. And then they do an autodidactic thing, which can often spin off in very crazy things because precisely there is no ontology that seeks to bridge between, if you'll allow me, everyday obviousness and the kind, those kinds of experiences of awe and like ontonormativity, like, and, and what, and, you know, if you take a look at Yaden's work, when people have these experiences, they, they will reconfigure their entire lives, their relationships, their careers, even their sense of identity, because they want to, they, and here's where I, I want to invoke it, they want to conform more and more to, to that really real. The really real has an independent normativity and value to them above and beyond, you know, practical power. And, and so, and they, and they do, and they do these, these major transformations, but they're often thwarted or that can go awry precisely because they often have to do it in a very autodidactic fashion. Uh, and that, you see, and that's where I would hope, you know, however uh, we manage to, uh, uh, you, know, you know, flesh out the ontology and make it work. And I think we, uh, we should both keep working. Um, 
I would hope that it would allow people to turn to individuals that they plausibly accord intellectual respect to, not because the project is intellectual, but because they can take seriously the ontology that would allow them to talk to each other. It would give them a lingua franca by which they could do what human beings often need to do, which is to do this in distributed cognition, not as isolated individuals. So that would be one of the hopes I would have uh, for an ontology. That it would... One of my hopes is that this distributed cognition includes Bernardo's cat. <laughs> push off the screen. Okay, when I if hear I don't that, push I'm him thinking, off, he will literally be on my face. <laughs> what occurs to me is a question I'd like you both to explore. That is, what is real? What exists? How do you define what exists? And can we ever know what's real? So Bernardo, why don't you start that? I don't think um, apes evolved on planet Earth have the cognitive apparatus that would be necessary for us to know uh, conceptually um, the ultimate salient truths uh, of nature. I don't think that is possible. So I don't think the game we are playing in ontology is a game of finding what the truth is. I think the game is given our limitations and our best learnings and best practices and our epistemic value system, how much closer to truth can we get? Mm -hmm. Knowing that we will not arrive, but can we do better than we are doing right now, given what we know and our value system? But by value system, I mean our appreciation of, uh, uh, of uh, empirical evidence, our appreciation of internal yeah. consistency, coherence, uh, of, yeah, I'll say that, uh, John, uh, conceptual parsimony, plausibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so given this value system uh, around which there is some degree of cultural consensus, not full, not full consensus, but some degree of cultural consensus, at least in academia, how well can we do? Can we do better than we are doing now? And I, I submit to you guys that I think we can do it significantly better than we are doing now. That, that would not mean that we can get to the truth of the matter as apes evolved on planet Earth, uh, but we can get closer than we are. And, and get, by getting closer, I also think, and, and this is uh, not by construction, it's, it so happens to be like that, by getting closer, I think we will also get healthier and we will live in a, in a healthier way, more aware of the depth of the mystery where we are uh, inserted, which is that dimension of depth and mystery that, uh, that we lose uh, sight of uh, today. That I think we can definitely achieve. Now, a quick observation. I, I need to have a bio break shortly. <laughs> so if, uh, if we can okay. find Do a point- Do you all want to take a washroom break right now? Or maybe John can answer the same question. So there is- uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So Bye, Bernardo. We'll see you right back. No, I want to hear the answer, and then I hope we can. Yeah, and then, uh, I, I would, and then we can both break, uh, yeah, if, yeah. If, if possible. Um, yeah. So I mean, real can be used in two different ways. It can be used as an absolute, or it can be used as a comparative. Um, and I happen to think that it makes more sense to treat it as a comparative. And I think that's what uh, what you're what you're saying, Bernardo. I think it, we, although we can't say this is real in an absolute sense, we can 
with good reason, good evidence and good argument say, but this is more real than that. Uh, we can make those comparative judgments uh, in a way that seems to be progressive uh, in, in, in the sense that like, we, can, we, we don't keep losing previous claims in some sort of chaos. There's a slowly building coherent structure that emerges and we revise it and blah, 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 I'm not denying any of that. But I think, I think the comparative sense of realness is something that we can, uh, we have to, uh, and I think we can put our, our epistemic trust in. Um, and, and, and so I think we, that is to say for all of our epistemic boundedness, I agree with you, Bernardo, we are, we are, we are slightly uh, super evolved apes that have culture and culture ratchets, which is, uh, that's an important, that's an important difference. We don't, have, we don't individually have to relearn everything from scratch and that does help. But I think culture ratchets precisely because we can make this progressive improvement. I don't think there's any teleology or anything like that. I think we can go, we, we still could massively just screw this all up. Nevertheless, I agree that I, we, can get, we can get better in a comparative sense of saying this is more real than that. And then this is more real than that. And then as soon as we do that, like, again, I think that means we are, all, we are already committed to a non-flat ontology. Um, uh, and I think that as soon as we do that, we start drawing relationships of, well, okay, this is dependent on this and this is dependent on that in terms of our judgment. And I think for me that, and this is where uh, I'll, I'll put my neck out a little bit more perhaps than Bernardo did. Uh, that's where to me, again, that original sort of platonic insight about you know, intelligibility and realness that our best, our, the best way we, we participate in the way we talked about earlier, reality is through intelligibility. It's our, it's our best uh, way of getting um, the platform by which we can walk a little bit more and more closer uh, to what is perhaps real in the, that absolute sense. But I agree. I think it's, I think it's hubristic and, and I think it's just, I think it's damaging to think we have the real in the really real sense in some sort of complete sense. I, I argue against that consistently. On the second point, I agree that if we don't get back to helping people improve those two things in an integrated fashion, intelligible realness, that they have, that things make sense to them and they feel that that sense is, people want both, right? There are different poles, in fact, of meaning life. People want things to make sense, but they also want what they make sense to be in some sense real, right? So I'll do this with, well, I'll do this with my students. I'll say, how many of you are in deeply satisfying romantic relationships? And they'll, I'll put up, they'll put up their hands. And I said, keep up your hand if you would like to know that your partner is cheating on you, even though that would destroy the relationship. 95% of my students keep their hands up because they don't want it if it's not real. Even if it's making beautiful sense to them, they ultimately also want it to be real. And so I think that if we do not give, if we, if we do not afford people a way of, well, I don't know, drinking more and more from the ongoing fount of intelligibility in a way that they think is realizing them in some fashion, I think it's going to, it is, I wouldn't even say it's going to, it is producing uh, ill health, both at the individual and, and, and collective level. Uh, and so these issues are not, uh, and I don't mean, I don't use this adjective pejoratively here, but these issues are not academic issues. These are existential issues. Um, and so I think people ignore them at their peril. 
one more time, I'm not saying everybody has to be a philosopher or a scientist, but there has to be, this problem can't be left unaddressed. Okay, let's go to the washroom. Have two minutes. <laughs> yeah. I'll be back in two minutes. John, do you have to go as well? Yeah, I'm going to go as well. All right. I'm back. How's it going? Good. How's it going? How is, Good. How is... I'm relieved. <laughs> You're relieved? How? The washroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, are, are, are we getting a lot of, uh, are we going to take yeah. questions at some point or? Uh... Yeah, it's actually better if you all continue talking and I'll wait for Bernardo before I say my next comments, but it's better if you continue to talk. The okay. Questions. There are questions, but these questions will then be the seed of a four hour discussion and you're already <laughs> in one. So you may as well just continue. Okay. Well, I, I like and uh, I like moving between these two, between debate and dialogos. Uh, thank you for yeah, doing. Yeah, we're going to get back to debate. Okay, that's fine. I, I'm happy to just stay here too, because um, uh, these issues are, are issues that really matter to me as well. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I, Bernardo is is coming at this, and I mean this is a real compliment. He's coming at this in, like in really good faith, um, and uh, and I'm always willing. Uh, I want to talk to and I want to be open to listening to people who are uh, coming at this with, you know, thoughtful, good faith. And that's clearly the case with him. And so, yeah, well, so is it with you? So thank you. As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the Best Sellers Trial Pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. Okay, well, you're welcome. I just, uh, I, I just, uh, this is very, very enjoyable. Yeah, thanks. It's always enjoyable when when I speak to you, or at least when I get a chance to listen to you, most of the time I'm listening rather than speaking to you. I enjoyed, I think it was two years ago, we had a couple conversations in person. Yeah. Was that long ago, eh? Yeah, wow. almost two years ago. In the summer, <sighs> it will be two years. Um, you were abstaining from chocolate then. Yeah, I, 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 I've been able to, uh, well, I'm on new medication for my Meniere's, and I've been on it since about six months now, and it's been just enormously successful. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I can indulge occasionally in a cho in chocolate. Uh, you're looking good, man. Someone said that you're sexy, but wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which one would you rather? Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't, I mean, 
I, I you know, both both aspects of what, what was been going on with us, Bernardo. I've, I've been really enjoyed it. Uh, I was I was telling Kurt, you know, I, I you're obviously I, I love to talk to people even when I disagree with them at some points, but people that are coming at this with you know with reflective good faith, um, I, you know, uh, it's deeply appreciative. Uh, so. I suppose maybe in the end it's, that I'm choosing sexy over I reciprocate your feeling by the way John I'm having a lot of fun I, I can hardly believe it's been two hours already yeah okay let's get to debate now because we were just talking about <laughs> say, idea hugging forget about that let's conflict let's have some swords where do you all disagree the most well, I'm not. I'm not quite clear on that, actually. Given a lot of the discussion here, um, uh, I know ontologically you disagree. Whereas Bernardo, excuse me if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly, but you were saying that we can have different contents of consciousness that are all the same, much like there are different fields in quantum physics that are all one underlying field, at least in the, in a grand unified no, theory. And no, no. I'm, what I meant is, uh, you can. Um, produce diversity out of unity if you take into account the notion of excitation. And this is what physics does all the time. So you can have a single field, it's all that exists. So you would say, well, then there is only one thing. How come there is this idea that there is diversity in the universe? And physics solves this by saying, okay, that one field has many possible different patterns of excitation on harmonics, and those are the differences. So you account for the phen phenomenological difference or diversity uh, without departing from ontological unity. And so it, it's something that uh, physics has regularly done more and more. Maybe it's overdoing it, uh, but it, it gives us a sort of a, a handle on how to deal with diversity without uh, uh, inflating the, the reduction base. And so uh, the the analogy I take it is uh, it, that um, when I was pointing to multiple, I guess they'd be analogous to particles uh, yeah, uh, within within consciousness, uh, that you are saying that they are just modes of a field. Is that is that is that a good way of putting it? Yeah, um, under. Under quantum field theory, uh, there is no electron as an entity. It's mm -hmm. just uh, um, a shorthand for a ripple on a field, so to say. And that field can ripple in different places in different ways. And those different patterns of rippling would account for the properties of the elementary subatomic particles. So uh, under quantum field theory, there are actually no particles. Uh, there are only fields. And that's the only way to reconcile uh, quantum theory, which you know, we know is true at the microscopic level, to reconcile that with general relativity, which we know is true at the macroscopic level. The it's only special. way to reconcile them is to use this notion of fields, which began with Maxwell in the 19th century. That was Maxwell's great uh, uh, insight following up on Faraday's notion of uh, uh, an electromagnetic field. Maxwell's insight was to treat it mathematically uh, as a field. But I take it that the patterns in the field are also real, because that's a, precisely what allows you to explain the differences. Yeah, that, that... Would, that would be the postulate. Of course, no, uh, John, uh, 
as far as uh, philosophy of science is concerned, I am an anti-realist. I think theoretical entities are um, useful fictions. And, uh, and I don't think they need to be anything more than useful fictions. In other words, nature behaves as though there were quantum fields. And, and that's all we need to know. We do not need to know whether the quantum fields are uh, actually and literally real, so long as they allow us to build a model that is predictively accurate, that predicts nature's uh, behavior. So th that's why I will not agree fully uh, with what you just said, but under the premises of realist philosophers of science, the quantum field would be real uh, as such, although it's entirely abstract. So, yeah, so I didn't mean to commit you to something there. I, I was just trying to get the depths of the analogy. Uh, and so I'll take it to be an analogy and not commit you to anything uh, at the level of quantum mechanics. So what I'm trying to get at is that there is a field uh, and the field is real, but there's also mods and mo modulations in the field and they're also real. Yeah, those those harmonics of the field are taken to be real insofar as they are the basis to explain the reality of measurable phenomena, which are then taken to be real too. Okay, so, so and, and then that's one thing I, I, I'm trying to, I, I think I'm getting from your ontology. And the other is the, uh, the idea is, is a kind of monism that at base your, your ontology has to ground in one thing uh, and, and because if you have more than one thing, you then you have an inic, unexplained relationship between the things. Is that kind of is that correct? Yeah. yeah the okay. argument against uh, um, uh, substance dualism is uh, one interaction problem. If these substances are ontologically distinct, how can they interact? The sure. other one is the causal closure uh, issue. Uh, we are very convinced that the physical world is causally closed, even though we don't really have a reason to think that because, you know, from microscopic laws to macroscopic phenomena, all kinds of unknown things can be playing, yeah, which yeah. we cannot know because there is no control, no experiment done under controlled conditions in the world at large. Uh, but the, so the uh, causal uh, closure of the world would be another argument. And the third argument is parsimony. Right. Uh, so, wh why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't those push you towards something like a Neoplatonic conclusion, or a Spinozistic conclusion, or some versions of non-dualism, which say, "Well, no, actually, mind and matter are actually two different modes uh, of, of 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 some underlying thing that would explain ultimately the relationship uh, between them without." Uh, denying their their different uh, here's and I'm using this I think correctly their different modalities, um, uh, and so and you know and so ultimately there is like in Neoplatonism there, there is the one and the one is neither conscious nor material it transcends both and therefore right or Spinoza's God who is neither right who is neither mental nor physical etc. So and and that and that strikes me as following very cleanly from the, those two things we've just talked about, right? You, where you've got a monism and you've got, right? And, and you've got this idea of modes um, of, uh, that everything that isn't the one thing is a mode of that one thing. Mm. This is, this is a, a position in philosophy called the dual aspect monism. 
arguably Spinoza was a multi-aspect monist. Yeah, he's not just dual aspect. Yeah, yeah, he's not just dual aspect. That's unfair to Spinoza. He really yeah. thinks of it as it's uh, as an inexhaustible thing, right? That we yeah. can't actually capture it. Oh. So th this this is an official position in, in in the sense that it's seriously discussed. Um, I I don't adopt it for the following reason. I don't think we need to postulate a third unknown thing, which only reveals itself through material and mental aspects. I don't think that's needed because all we know and can know about what we call matter is essentially mental. Even our abstractions are mental. Our inferences are mental. Uh, the material, quote, material world we see around us is made of qualities. It's made of colors, scents, flavors, mental things. Um, so to, to postulate anything that isn't essentially mental, I think is justified only if you cannot account for the facts based on nature's one given, which is mentality. The primary datum of existence is mentality. If you, if you cannot make sense of things based on that one given, then I think you are entitled to go into abstraction territory and invent uh, unknown things uh, in order to account for everything. I happen to think that we can make sense of everything without having to take that step of abstraction. Well, well um, what about a, a standard sort of platonic argument that goes something like this? Uh, well, minds seem to be spatio-temporal things, at least if we're doing what you said, which is what uh, how I experience it. Uh, and yet I seem to need to invoke non-spatio-temporal things. Um, you know, that I'll have certain logical principles, for example, that I need to make use of in my reasoning. Um, and, and trying to, like, does the, does the law of non-contradiction have a spatio-temporal existence? That seems wrong. That seems to, to not capture uh, the kind of entity it is. Or most of math, most of, right? And so the idea is, well, and then, and then which do I ex use to explain which? Well, I actually use the logic and, and the mathematics to explain and make my, my inferential conclusions about my consciousness. And those things don't seem to be spatio-temporal and therefore, and there you go. And that's what I need. Um, I need something other than mentality in order to get intelligibility. I think uh, the tendency well, or the, the notion to, to postulate non-spatio-temporal things, I think it's a, when we do that, we are confusing a mental archetype with a thing. For instance, Aristotelian logic, it's something that um, for, for which there is no ob objective um, proof. Logic is a set of axioms. For instance, using the law of excluded middle, middle, that's an axiom. There is an entirely coherent alternative in logic called intuitionism, which dispenses <laughs> with the law of excluded middle and it's valid. So logic is founded on a set of axioms that appeal directly to our intuition in a way that seems to dispense with the need for argument. It's, it's self-evident. Um, the whole of mathematics, in a sense, is, is, is based on these things that are self-evident. Two plus two is four, by definition, because we make it so, right? Um, and we have arguments, for instance, for why multiplying a negative and a positive number results in a negative number. Um, but 
these are things that are not empirical, they are mental, and yet they seem to be entirely objective. So I would say the objectivity arises from the fact that these are archetypal patterns of mind. These are the natural harmonics, the natural ways in which mind gets excited, the, the intrinsic natural modes of mentation. They aren't things, and yet they are objective because of that. So we don't need to postulate something non-mental to account for mental objectivity. All we need to understand is that mind itself has some preferential modes. I mean, that goes back to Jung and goes back to Plato's forms. Uh, sure. um, so archetypes are just regularities of behavior. They don't need to be things that exist in, in, in a place somewhere. I think that Roger Penrose makes this mistake. I mean, if I am to be so bold as to <laughs> point out a mistake by Roger Penrose, but uh, Roger is a trialist and what he sees as the domain of values, uh, platonic values, I think we can account for those as merely the natural frequencies of excitation of mind. We don't need to go beyond mind. So, I mean, this is what I, I find challenging because it seems like this is getting into a kind of nomalism again, which is the, I, I, and that it, it gets, it, 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 I find it very hard to reconcile that with scientific practice because I, I, if I'm going to, the relationships between spatiotemporal things are not themselves spatiotemporal if I want to make the kinds of inferences I'm making. For example, you're making inferences about all of reality. Uh, and I take it that all of reality is not itself a spatiotemporal thing. Oh, I see. Right. What I mean. Right. And so, therefore, uh, you have to invoke uh, non spatiotemporal uh, things. Uh, and they're normative on us. We acquiesce in them. That was Plato's point. We we say, oh, this is better than that. Yes, and we, we can move around in our logics, but, but, but I don't think that's ultimately problematic. Um, and the point I'm trying to make is that's radically other than my experience of my mind, which is as a spatiotemporal, limited, locatable, perishing at, uh, you know, uh, I, I talked to my, my sister and she tells me, and I think she's being directly honest, that there was a time when I did not exist. And I take that to be the case. And I don't think she's lying. And I'm not a solipsist. And I don't think you're a solipsist. Um, and so it seems to me that there's aspects of reality that are unlike my mind, in that my mind seems to be essentially spatiotemporal, and these things are not spatiotemporal, and yet they're normative on our decisions about what is real. I think your mind as an individual person with private conscious in their life, I think that is finite. I think our bodies, our metabolism is what uh, dissociation looks like when observed from across a dissociative boundary. And dissociation comes, from, it comes to an end, but the underlying mind, which is the only thing that ever existed, I don't think that comes to an end. It's the thing where all beginnings and ends uh, take place. Um, on, on what I mentioned about archetypes and science, there's a paper written in 1960 by Eugene Wigner, um, title, I will paraphrase it, um, the amazing effectiveness of mathematics to describe uh, the laws of nature or something like yeah, this. And he yeah, used the yeah. word miracle 12 times uh, in that paper. And, and his, his wonder was, why would axiomatic human thinking, the things we take to be self-evident, why would those axioms of human mentation apply to the behavior of the universe at large? That's a great mystery. And I think uh, associating the laws of nature to archetypes of the same mind that underlies us and nature in a way that we are ontologically continuous uh, with nature would make sense of that. But I do understand the point you made, which is, 
if I frame everything in spatio-temporal terms, uh, then I'm taking space-time as a sort of objective primary scaffolding of nature out there. And uh, do we have reasons to believe that to be the case? No, we have plenty of reasons to believe that that is precisely not the case that's coming up from neuroscience. Now it's coming up from physics with uh, loop quantum gravity in which space-time is now a derivative phenomenon of quantum processes. It's not a pre-existing scaffolding of the universe. Um, so the problem is that space-time is built into our language our mm -hmm. way of making arguments. So I, I cannot escape that. So I, 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 when I talk about excitations, I'm appealing to space-time because we think in spatial-temporal terms, as Kant put it uh, in Schopenhauer too, space and, times are, space and time are modes of our cognition. It, it, if, if I am to talk about something without pre-assuming space and time, I can't even open my mouth because language already presupposes tenses, uh, present, past, and future presuppose a distinction between object and subject, which requires space. That was Schopenhauer's Principium Individuationis. For two things to be different, they have to be within a yeah, certain yeah. extended yeah. dimension. Um, so don't take me wrong. I don't think space-time are primary. It's just that uh, if I try to be consistent with what I actually think, I can't open my mouth. So, so everything I say that is framed under the the notion of space and time, you should take it as what I believe to be pen penultimate truths. They point at an ultimate truth that I can't capture, uh, can't corral into the space-time framework of language. Well, I, I, I'm happy with that. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that, that's a very, that, that, is the, that is a neoplatonic conclusion that uh, the, the, the one as the ground of intelligibility is not something that uh, that we can intelligibly grasp because it affords all intelligible grasping. And so it's by definition inherently a mystery because we can't frame it because it's behind all framing. And I think that that's going to follow in any monism that you're going to have something at the bottom. Uh, by the way, I'm also a monist, so I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I guess what I was pointing back to was the phenomenology, which is it seems to me that, um, you, I don't know what to call it. I think in on one of your videos, you called it cosmic consciousness. I'm not, I, I don't want to give you the wrong, I want to talk about the consciousness that isn't my introspective personal consciousness. That's fine. Mind at large, cosmic consciousness. I find this perfectly good uh, descriptive terms, which I, I used cosmic consciousness in, acad in an academic paper on purpose, tongue in cheek a little bit, because I wanted to dispel this association with new age. Cosmic consciousness is perfectly descriptive. <laughs> okay. The, uh, and I won't, I'm not, I'm not invoking any new age woo-woo. Um, I, I just wanted your term for this because there seems to be then, it seems to me a difference, uh, a very significant difference in degree or maybe a difference in kind between my consciousness, which seems to be again, a perishable uh, spatial temporally bound thing uh, that is not fully present to itself. Um, and the, the, the cosmic consciousness, which seems to be very different um, because I, I take it that it ultimately is identical to uh, the, the ground, uh, the, what I would call the one, um, and which I take to not be spatiotemporal, to be in, no, in, in some sense, if it's one, it has to be present to itself throughout because if it's not present to itself, it's not one. And so there seems to be a radical difference between my consciousness and I assume your consciousness and the, the cosmic consciousness. And why isn't that, a, that's really big because, you know, spatial temporal and mysterious and not and co-present to not, these are all big differences. 
you know, and, and when you get enough differences in degree, don't you get a difference in kind? Isn't a different? Isn't it a different kind of thing? I don't um, think how, so. Okay, but okay. I, I okay. think it's a common. Uh, 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 I'll use a certain word, not in disrespect to you. It's just yep. that it's a technical word. I think this is a common and ever more popular fallacy. The idea that differences in degree can lead to a difference in kind. I think life is a particular state of consciousness. If you've ever had a high dose, deep psychedelic trip, you would know that uh, that's not spatio-temporal. You, you get into territories, into certain configurations or states of mind that are not spatio-temporal at all. Um, and you come back and you can't talk about it because we just don't have the words. Uh, but those are very concrete, very present um, states of mind. I think life is a particular state of consciousness, a kind of trance. And, and we shouldn't attribute the qualities of this particular state to mind at large. For instance, I, I always warn people to not anthropomorphize mind at large by attributing to it our ability to, to plan to act in a premeditated way, to self-reflect. Mm -hmm. uh, I think mind at large is instinctive and that's why the laws of nature are so predictable and stable. Um, so I think there is an enormous difference in quality, but not in kind. I think both are mental in the sense that both are qualitative or experiential. Well, okay. Um, I mean, these, 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 I mean, I think you get into Sorides paradoxes if differences of degree don't eventually become differences of kind. Uh, and so uh, I do think there is a, a need for that. But the maybe problem with that is that you would have to pinpoint exactly at what point there is a sudden translation in kind. Because you see, uh, I can add more speakers to my hi-fi, but at what point does it turn into a television? You see what I mean? Well, I mean, it's a category I can... error. Well, I can add a lot of individual units that can't do computation together, and they together can do computation. I mean, and so uh, there is there is there are all those kinds of transitions. So but, but, let's take that. Let's take that an example. This is close to me because I'm a computer engineer first. <laughs> that okay. was my first doctorate. Everything that, that a computer does. And look, my hobby is to build computers, 8-bit computers here <laughs> uh, behind yeah. me. There's a corner of society in which I'm more or less famous for building this, this, this computer from scratch. Everything a computer does can be done with uh, pipes, water, and pressure-driven. Sure, multiple parts. realizability, yeah. 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 So all those computations, it's just a difference of two states, zero or one. So you can have a valve that is shut or open, pressure-driven valves, pipes, and water. So if you... People in strong AI now who say that a complex enough computer will be conscious, the challenge to them is to explain at what point you add enough pipes, taps, and water for a system that is only pipes, taps, and water to become conscious if it already doesn't start as being conscious. What is it about extra pipes, taps, and water that turns it conscious? I think what we are doing there is the classical hand-waving. We are trying to bury the problem under a layer of obfuscating complexity, and then we hand-wave our way saying, and then some, something magical happens there. And I can't explain it to you because it's too complex. No, it's still just pipes, taps, and water. If it didn't start as conscious, it will not become conscious because the properties you change or add by adding pipes, taps, and water are incommensurable with the property you want to emerge or the transitioning kind you want to have produced. That would be my view. And then if you disagree, I would challenge you to explain to me exactly how 
a sufficient high number of pipe steps in the water can change something in kind. Okay, well, let me try and finish the point I was gonna make uh, because I wanted to, um, because I think you have an analogous problem, which is if cosmic mind is not itself intelligent, you now have the problem of how does it get arranged such that intelligence emerges? Uh, well, I think it can be intelligent. You said it can't plan or it's act instinctively. You can uh, have instinctive intelligence that is not informed by metacognition. So it's not capable of rationality then. It can't reflect on itself and correct its own behavior in any fashion. That's what I think. Because the laws of nature are so predictable and because it took so many years, so many billions or three and a half billion years of evolution. So, so we birth. still have the problem of how rationality emerges, right? Uh, from things that are not rational. Oh, that, that, that's not a hard problem. That's a problem of AI and AI exists. Right, and so what you admit is I can take things that are non-rational and put them together in the right way and get rationality, yes? Yes, yes. Okay, so why, and we, we now think that we can, we got a pretty good answer of how we can take non-living stuff and put it together and get living things, yes? That's a more subtle problem. I, I would say uh, yes, but uh, a qualified yes. Okay, so I, so I, I got a qualified right <laughs> Okay, so I, I've got a qualified yes for life and I've got a strong yes for intelligence. Yeah. And I, I didn't, I can't actually in either one of those say to you, this is the line, the dividing point. This is the threshold point. Biology hasn't produced it. And I, I, I but we don't, we don't thereby say, oh, well, that means it's not real. It doesn't emerge. We say, no, no. Right, it's 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 precisely a continuous change, not a bifurcation change. Um, and so again, what's the difference between consciousness and, you know, it, it, I'm I'm putting us we're putting we're talking about the emergence problem. If we are willing to, to countenance for for life, and we at one time we didn't, we thought no, there's no way, you know, and Elan Vital and all that stuff. And then for the longest time, no way, no machine could possibly be intelligent. And now that's becoming less and less a plausible place to stand. What's the difference okay. then? Our concept of intelligence is something that human beings came up with. There is information processing in nature. Uh, we apply the label intelligence, not based on neutral objective reasons, but based on what we feel is similar enough to us to be considered intelligent. Arguably, a paramecium is intelligent in the sense that it goes after the food it needs to and it I, runs I, away I, from, from, from uh, threats. Um, so there is no such a thing as a defining boundary in which there's a difference in kind. All you have is information processing. You already start with it, simple information processing, like a transition between two, two states. It's all, all, all over in nature, you flip your switch, it's a transition between one state to the other. And then we get more complex interrelated transitions of states. There mm -hmm. is no fundamental crossing of a boundary. It's just where are we comfortable to put the label intelligence? In AI, we devised an arbitrary test to justify that, we call it the Turing test. Yeah, um, the Turing test is problematic, but go ahead, go ahead. So, so uh, there is no fundamental transition, it's just a spectrum. It's a continuum, I would say. Uh, when uh, Searle uh, in 1980 wrote uh, his paper on the Chinese room experiment, Chinese room, yeah. uh, he, he was appealing to conscious understanding. His argument had nothing to do with intelligence. The MIT guys were right in their, in their uh, rebuttal to Searle. Um, 
because for them, intelligence is just more complex information processing. So the room is intelligent if the manual the, the clerk is using contains enough complex instructions for that information processing to be considered intelligent. The intuition Searle was appealing to was understanding, not intelligence. And what is that intuition? That, that intuition is the conscious experience that goes coupled with certain types of information processing. That conscious experience we call understanding. And then the clerk inside the room, which is only the, the only conscious entity there, does not have understanding because he's not absorbing all the information processing into his mind. A lot of it is in the manual. Um, so that's for intelligence. As for life, I am sympathetic to you there, but I feel obliged to remind you that we have not achieved a biogenesis. We have arguably achieved intelligence. There are server farms today or you know, uh, computer farms using a lot of uh, graphical accelerators running neural networks, which I would be personally comfortable, comfortable to say this is intelligent. Uh, my intuition would acquiesce to that immediately. Um, so we have achieved that, we've created that, but we have not created life from non-life. What Craig Venter has achieved was to artificially create a DNA molecule and insert it into a molecule that was already living and then zap it with electricity and the molecule changed the way it makes proteins. But we have not achieved a biogenesis. So I think the jury is still out, but even if we one day achieve a biogenesis, and I personally think we will, I think what that will mean is that we've found an artificial way to induce dissociation in the universal mind, because life metabolism is what dissociative processes look like. Okay, so it seems to me like that, uh, I don't want to get into the uh, exegetical disagreement about how to interpret Searle in the Chinese room, because I think there's independent arguments. And I think he ultimately said the, ar the argument has to do with multiple realizability, not with understanding. I mean, that's what came out in the That was my interpretation. I, I, was not, yeah, I didn't mean to attribute that to Searle himself. Okay, okay, so fair enough, fair enough. Uh, but but I, I don't think we have to resolve the interpretation of Searle to continue our discussion is what I'm saying. Um, so, so it sounds like that for you, the the, the emergence of things like life and intelligence are not problematic, uh, but there's something different for consciousness. And the problem I have with that is um, we also have deep intuitions about the deep relationship and interdefining of intelligence and consciousness. Most of our attributions of consciousness, other than yours, Bernard, I don't wanna, I don't wanna misattribute to you, they generally track with attributions of intelligence. Um, and the, the measures of intelligence, measures of like working memory, uh, correlate also with, you know, models of consciousness, uh, the global workspace, uh, things like that. Uh, consciousness seems to exist um, for those problems. Uh, so you can compare behavior that which requires our consciousness for the behavior that doesn't. And consciousness seems to be uh, those situations that require our, our most sophisticated intelligence, situations that are complex, novel, relatively unpredictable. We can't do those unconsciously or semi-consciously. We have to do them full consciously. So there seems to be, what I'm saying is, this it, very tight interweaving between intelligence and consciousness. I recognize what you're saying. Um, 
the way I would uh, uh, try to make sense of this, uh, well, I, I would say that uh, we are conflating phenomenal consciousness with meta-consciousness when we make this mm. argument. Meta-consciousness entails phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness, using the definitions from... From uh, Block. Block. Block, 1995, yeah. 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 Um, almost all research on consciousness is actually exploring meta-consciousness insofar as it depends on the subject's ability to report on what they are experiencing. So for instance, blind sight studies, we yep. say well, it's unconscious sight. Well, we say that because the subject says, I am not seeing, but the subject is behaving as if he or she were seeing. So I would say what, what, what has gone broken there is the feedback loop that is required for reportability. Um, Giulio Tononi's uh, information integration theory that, that phi, magic phi yeah, number, yeah, that yeah, if you cross the yeah. phi number, you're a conscious. Well, that's empirically calibrated based on subjective reports. So phi captures the moment you cross the threshold of metacognition, not the threshold of experience pure and simple. It's very hard to study experience pure and simple in an objective setting, because you can only study that through introspection. It's only when you suddenly become metaconscious of something you were already conscious of all along that you realize, oh darn, I, I have known this all along. I knew this. I just didn't know that I knew. So th this is the only way for you to realize that there was an experience. The only thing that was missing was the metacognitive loop. And, and I think topographically, it's, it's really a loop because um, research on the neurocorrelates of consciousness always points out that you have to have a cycle, a loop closed. Um, phi depends on that structure of loops being closed. That's what's called information integration. Previous research prior to Tononi points out that you needed this feedback and feed forward ping-ponging of information between two brain areas. For instance, the, the visual cortex and the limbic system. Uh, if mm -hmm. you cut that, then you get, for instance, blind sight. Um, and then we say, well, the person is not conscious of sight. No, the person is not reporting the experience of seeing, but the person is behaving entirely consistently with the awareness of seeing, the phenomenal conscious uh, of vision. So I, I, look, this, this is an area where so many misunderstandings have happened throughout the history of psychology and neuroscience. If you read Jung, let's, let's go back to the early 20th century. If you read Jung, and you distill how he defines consciousness, you will see that what he's talking about is meta-consciousness. He talks about consciousness requiring an associative web. If you don't have this web of associations, it's not conscious. He talks about consciousness uh, having to be coupled to a will. And if you read what he means by the will, what he means is deliberation, reflection. He's talking about reflection, self-reflection. Uh, he talks about children slowly becoming conscious in the first years of their lives. Does he mean by that that his, his five children did not experience anything until they were seven? Of course he didn't mm -hmm. mean that. Um, there are neuroscientists today who define consciousness as meta-consciousness. And I think it's fine to use the word that way. The, moment where it goes wrong is when we think we've solved the problem because we are using the word consciousness when in fact we are we mean meta consciousness and we are not solving the problem of consciousness at all that's my grievance about what happens today so is meta consciousness though the only way we have access experiential access 
to our consciousness, to consciousness. I don't, I mean, I don't have access to your consciousness. Um, so. Uh, the, I think the best paper on this was from 2002. Uh, I forgot the name of the author. Um, I can send it to you offline afterwards. Uh, sure, sure. The, the author explains that uh, we have experiences and meta-consciousness is what happens when we re-represent those experiences. So suppose we are talking about perception, then we have a direct perceptual experience that's representational by definition, it's perception. But at some point we re-represent our own inner representations in order to investigate uh, the contents of our own awareness. That's the point where meta-consciousness uh, arises. It's this step of re-representation. And, and that's, that's not built into experience. So if you'd say, do we need that to access our experiences? I would say no, because experiences are, are accessible as experiences, but we need that to explicitly access our experiences. If, if I go back to Jung, every, Jung has said it all eh, in old-fashioned <laughs> language, but everything is in Jung. Jung said in answer to Job, um, God is omniscient, but he doesn't know how to consult his omniscient. Uh, the devil is much more clever in knowing how to consult uh, omniscience. What is he talking about? He's talking about meta-consciousness. So I think we have experiential access to everything in our own minds, but uh, we cannot deliberately access all of it because not all of it can be placed under the microscope of reflection at our own will. We don't have that much control over, our, over the entirety of the psyche. So um, let me make sure I understand you. So what you're saying is we do have access to experience that's non-reflective access. It's some kind we have of direct experiential access to that, yeah. Sorry, that sounds sorry. That sounds circular. You're saying you don't want to say like you, you don't want to get into an infinite request that I have qualia. Qualia is what it is to experience because then I'd have to have qualia for my qualia, and I'd have to have qualia for yeah, my I don't qualia. Mean that. My qualia. I was trying no, to okay. use the word yes. you used before. Yeah. We experience everything that is on in our own minds, but we cannot explicitly re-represent everything that is experienced in our own minds. For instance, I'd maintain that. Five minutes ago, you were experiencing your breathing, but you were not re-representing the experience of your breathing. Therefore, you were not reporting to yourself, I am breathing. But I wasn't experiencing my belief that Africa was a continent, which I'm experiencing right now. Yeah. Was that... So what, what, what uh, are you trying to say? That that belief well, was I, not I take it that, Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I have the belief... Uh, but I'm not experiencing it until I just did now. Uh, Africa is a continent, but I have the belief. And I know that I have the belief because if you ask me, I'll say yes. And uh, when I look on a map, I'll say there's one of the continents, but I'm not doing that constantly. Yeah. Uh, so th that's not the evidence. That's the evidence that I have the belief. It's not the belief. So I'm not be I, I, I reject behaviorism of belief, right? The beliefs are something other beyond the behavior and you're nodding. So I think you agree with that. And yet, um, I wasn't experiencing that. Uh, and in fact, most of what I believe I'm not experiencing right now. Right now. Uh, yeah. 
I understand the heart of your argument. And, you, you, and you're poken in the right place because you already understood that a direct implication of what I'm saying is that everything has to be experiential. There is no other place for psychic contents to lay dormant, waiting to be experienced, because by definition, analytic idealism says everything is experiential. So we have to have a mental mechanism that is able to compartmentalize experience such that you are not able to access all of those experiences. And now, of course, the, what we mean by you is, is, is part of, of the answer. But uh, I would postulate two things as mechanisms for that. One is what we've been talking about, um, metacognition. Metacognition um, not only amplifies the contents that are re-represented, because we can pile up re-representation re on top of re-representation. You can know that you know that you know that you're experiencing and so on. And it obfuscates everything else. Another mechanism I would put forward to you is dissociation. I mean, and I think there is now plenty of empirical evidence that dissociation is strong enough to do exactly what I needed to do, which is to compartmentalize experience completely, including your experience of the knowledge of Africa. Because you know, in 2015, people in Germany, two researchers in Germany, um, they, they, they were dealing with a woman who claimed to have multiple dissociated alters, amongst which two claimed to be uh, blind although there was nothing wrong physically with the woman's ability, mm -hmm. ability to see, and the host personality could see perfectly well. So they had this brilliant idea of hooking her up to an EEG cap uh, and measuring her uh, visual cortex activity while uh, a sighted alter was in control, and then there was normal visual cortex activity. And when the blind alter would uh, take executive control, visual cortex brain activity would disappear even though the woman's eyes were wide open and things were happening in front of her. Now, dissociation is powerful enough to be literally blinding. So I would think of a hierarchy of dissociative processes. We know many types of dissociative processes, not only forgetting things, but losing the sense of ownership to your own memories, even though you still remember the memories, but it, they feel like they are alien memories, somebody else's memories, uh, all kinds of dissociation, all, all different degrees of dissociation and multiple levels of re-representation, hierarchical re-representation, I would put forward to you that these two things, these two complex processes that we know happen, the existing nature, there is no empirical doubt about it, uh, they are sufficient to compartmentalize mind in such a way that you think a lot of things that are happening in the mind of nature uh, are not actually happening because they are not accessible to you. You may be dissociated from them. You may not be re-representing them. You may be obfuscating them. All kinds of hierarchical levels of, <laughs> of compartmentalizing processes may be taking place. And I submit to you that although this sounds complex, it's a lot more plausible and less complex than the alternatives, like uh, the combination problem in bottom-up uh, panpsychism or constitutive panpsychism, or the hard problem of consciousness for which we don't even have in principle answers. As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, 
I recognized the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers trial pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H. L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. Um, so uh, I guess you're willing to countenance the existence of processes that are outside consciousness modifying it because that's what dissociation is. I mean, if it's blind Outside you, your consciousness. Well, whose consciousness is it residing in? Is it residing in cosmic mind consciousness? I think there is only one consciousness. And what we consider to be us is a dissociative complex of that one consciousness. So is the one, but where is the dissociation? Where does it exist? In, in the one consciousness. Who, who, yeah, but some consciousness must be aware of it. So is the cosmic consciousness aware of the dissociation? That's it what consciousness means. It, it experiences the dissociation from both sides, from the inner side, which is us, we are part of nature, we are not a separate entity, and it experiences the, the dissociation from the other side, the side of the inanimate uh, universe. And, and those experiences are presented to us in the form that we call the inanimate universe, which is a representation of what is essentially natural instinctive mental processes unfolding beyond the boundary of our own dissociation. So I'm so, with Schopenhauer. It's it's the will inside and it's the will outside. <laughs> um, so why does this dissociation occur? It's a question that that, um, that I, I get all the time. Um, I, I will answer, but I, I I'll first invite you to ask yourself why there needs to be a why. Um, is anything else in nature? Well, no, no, wait, wait, there does, because your whole, I mean, the whole defense depends on the dissociations and the differences between metacognition and dissociated cognition. That is the main thing you use to explain the, exter the external world. So yeah. if that, if, if I don't have any principles by which this operates, then it's not clear to me that I've gained anything uh, by just oh. saying, oh, there's, well, there's an external world, right? Uh, and yeah. I don't quite know how that works any more than you can explain to me how the dissociation and the metacognitive leveling works. Yeah, okay, I understand what you mean now. You didn't, you, you were not asking for a reason, you were asking for a process, a mechanism. Yeah. I, I understand yeah. it now. We will answer that question once we figure out how abiogenesis a ever happened. 
how life arose from non-life. Because I would submit to you that from the point of view of representation, the Kantian phenomena, the Schopenhauerian representation, what that process looked like was the emergence of life. Because for me, life is the extrinsic appearance of dissociation. So the answer to your question is exactly the same as the answer to the question, how did life arose from non-life? It's just that you're looking at the same process from two perspectives, a first-person perspective and an outside third-person perspective, the perspective of representation. But it's one and the same process, and therefore it follows one and the same mechanism. Um, if there is a need to have a why beyond the mechanism, like why did the universe do this? I don't think there is a need for that, but if there yeah, were... I, yeah, I wasn't asking for a motive, you know. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was... so. I, I mean, I take it that, that you're saying that there are processes that are self-organizing in some fashion, uh, because we, right? I, I, you, you even use that metaphor in a couple of your videos. You talk about eddies within the river uh, yeah, yeah, and things and like, yeah, yeah. It, and it, life is- talk a lot of, sorry. No, no, I, I'm not making accusations. I'm just trying to making sure that I'm, I'm getting you correctly. And whatever life is, it's, it's, it's a very complex self-organizing thing. Um, and I actually think that Varela's right. It's an autopoetic thing and not just a self-organizing thing. And that's, that's what allows me to say that the paramecium is to some degree intelligent and the tornado is not. Because the tornado does not do anything. It does not seek out the conditions that produce, protect or promote its existence and the paramecium does. Um, and so- yes, I'm with you all the way. Um, yeah. I, what I'm putting forward does not require any change in our scientific understanding of how life works and how it arose. It just provides a, a, another perspective to the same process. I'm saying that there is actually an inner perspective, that the representation is not the whole story. It's a valid story. It, it, it is an accurate representation of the process. So knowledge gained by looking at the process as it unfolds in the physical world is valid knowledge. All I'm saying is that the thing in itself, which lies behind how it's represented by our perception cognitive apparatus, that thing in itself is mental and it is of a dissociative character. But so it's I'm not mental, changing but... any science. No, no, but uh, I, yeah, I, I get that. I, I, I'm not... Uh... I hope I wasn't implying that because I didn't. I didn't see you saying that. Um, but that's that's sort of the, what the problem I'm coming up with. It looks like the science stays the same, um, yeah. and we we do okay. Um, and then and then you invoke the principle of parsimony. I'll invoke a principle, which is don't invoke in your explanation an entity more controversial than the entity in the thing you're trying to explain. And you're ultimately invoking what looks to me like God. Um, which I would need independent evidence for this. Con I mean, other than right in in a circular fashion, I would need an in, I would need independent evidence for cosmic mind, right? Um, in, in in order to make this argument run, and that's been a very problematic thing to do for a very very long time. The thing is, you're appealing to controversial something controversial, which is an entirely culture laden. Uh, 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 thing uh, is it controversial or not it's entirely subjective i didn't talk about god anywhere i even uh, volunteered to you that i think this universal mind is instinctive and naturalistic it's not premeditated it's not anthropomorphic right. so uh, how, that you attribute the quality of being controversial to it i would uh, they are no. to submit to you that it's an entirely subjective value judgment. It, 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 uh, it, it, no, okay. What I meant was typical. Uh, so, uh, other than that, uh, let's try and make it a little bit more formal. 
uh, that I don't invoke something that requires argumentation uh, uh, right, as much as the argument I'm giving. Um, uh, I'll submit to you that mine is the simplest in terms of argumentation. It requires no miracle. It requires no strong emergency. It requires no magical combination of fundamentally separate subjective points of view. And there is a host of empirical substantiation for it. Beat that. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, I still think you have the equivalent of, of what the panpsychist has. You have an explanation uh, is needs to be forthcoming of how I get living minded, rational uh, ent entities like me out of a mind that is not uh, biologically alive, that is not capable of rational, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to me that I don't know what I've gained by m replacing the external world from which I have to explain intelligence and consciousness and rationality from saying, well, there's this other mind out there that is, but it's, it's not capable, it doesn't have rationality, it doesn't have personality, it doesn't have all of the features of God, for example, and it's, and, and right, and, and, and then there's some self-organizing process that emerges. Well, that sounds to me like, well, there's matter, it doesn't have all these properties, there's some self-organizing process, and, it, and mind and life emerge. What's the difference between the two moves? If you think it's implausibly complex to say, that uh, complex minds like ours have evolved from a very simple phenomenal substrate. Imagine how implausible it is to say that complex minds like ours emerged out of non-mind. Which one's better? They're, they're, they seem to me to be not different. That's my point. They seem Ontologically, to me to say one requires a huge ontological jump from no mind to mind. The other one only requires degrees. The thing is, you're very but, but, focused on this notion that degree can lead to a difference in kind, which I think is a fallacy. But, but you're invoking it. You're invoking it because you're saying that the cosmic mind is ultimately different in kind from my mm. mind. That's why, my, that's why me calling it something like God is fundamentally a mistake because it doesn't have some of the fundamental features of my personhood which is what kind? the traditional definition of God is. I'm not saying it's different in kind, because I'm saying it's also mental in the sense that its processes are of an experiential or qualitative nature. But the complexity of those processes, the inner interactions, the changes of state, the structure and dynamics of those processes can vary over large degrees. And the substrate is still the same field of subjectivity, the same field of phenomenality. Uh, so there is no, ontologically, there is no transition in kind. It's a transition of sophistication, the complexity of the processes that unfold there. If, if you will, um, the, 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 the underlying mind at large, uh, you, can, you can look at it as a lake with uh, simple straight ripples and, uh, and, uh, and our uh, minds with all kinds of you know, higher level mental functions, feedback mechanisms, intelligence, rationality, self-reflection, self-awareness, re-representation and all that stuff as a, a very stormy <laughs> uh, um, water in a cup, but very stormy water in a cup with all kinds of patterns of movement that are much more complex, waves that fold in upon themselves and form reflective surfaces, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, um, access uh, patterns but, uh, going on. But, but it's still water. But you're invoking new kinds, all kinds of patterns, all kinds all of kinds things. Of 
patterns of excitation that are, that are real. Yes, but not a different kind of the medium that is excited. So look, you can have- so, so, so there's ultimately physics, which isn't just matter. It's time and space and quantum crap and relativistic crap. And some of it gets very complex and that's me. And some of it doesn't get very complex and that's a rock. I mean, again, and I take it that there's a difference in kind between me and rocks. And I think you do too, because you treat persons with morality in a way you don't treat rocks with morality. So there's a difference in kind there that comes out in your, in your behavior in a very predictable manner. I think there's a difference in complexity, which leads to different properties. Uh, and you can pass judgments based on the properties that are available. But I don't think there is a difference in kind as far as the ontological substrate is concerned. It's still mental. It's still subjectivity. You can have very simple ripples and very complex ripples, but it's mm. still just ripples in water. It's still just water. Or you can have a silicon I, I, I want to point out to you the irony that you're using a physical analogy. Uh, to describe this, thereby pointing to the it, fact that physical things can actually do the kind of stuff you're pointing to. I'm not denying that which we call the physical. I'm denying the theoretical inference that that which we call the physical has a root in something non-mental. But I'm not denying the experience of the yeah. world that we call I, I, physical. Right. Um, but I, I John, I feel like you're holding back. What are your true thoughts? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not holding back in the sense that there's stuff I want to say that I'm not saying. I'm, I, 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 there's, uh, I, I think there's, uh, and I don't mean this pejoratively to either Bernardo or myself, I think there's an intuitive vision here that we're, we're not necessarily sharing. Um, um, and, what do you mean by that? Uh, I think the, 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 the intuitions about I mean, it seems to me like Bernardo was saying, that, you know, the world exists independently of my mind, um, but it doesn't exist independently of some mind that I'm not directly aware of. Uh, and that's, that strikes me as uh, problematic uh, because I would need evidence for that mind independent of me uh, in, in order to uh -huh. make the argument run. I, I got it. So the analogy I like to use for this is the following. Unless we are solipsists, unless we think that the only mind going on is our own, our own mind, the ones we have direct access to, so I, I will consider that something, something that we don't need to debate. We can reject that. I even wrote about an argument to reject that. But I, know as, you, uh, I know you reject it. Yeah, so, as Russell uh, said, even those who purport to believe in solipsism actually don't act as if they believe. It's a performative solipsism. contradiction. Yes, totally. Yeah. Okay. So unless you were that, you have to infer something outside of that which you have direct access to. You have to make an inference beyond your own mind, unless sure. you're a solipsist. So the difference is, what is that inference? How complex, how, how uh, um, parsimonious, and how explanatorily powerful is that inference? But everybody has to make that inference. So the analogy I use is the following. My mind is the earth I can see until the horizon. Beyond the horizon, I cannot see directly. But I need to infer that the Earth, that there is something be beyond the sure. horizon to make sense of empirical experience. Otherwise, I do not have a satisfactory explanatory model for how you and me seem to be sharing the same world and all that, uh, granting that you also uh, are conscious. I reject being... solipsism too. I reject okay. solipsism too. So I, my, my inference is the following. Up to the horizon, it's my mind, it's mental. Beyond the horizon, it's just more mind. It's just that I cannot see it. 
the physicalist will say, up to the horizon, it's my mind, it's mental. Beyond the horizon, it's a totally different kind of stuff that is exhaustively definable in terms of pure quantities and out of which we do not have a way, even in principle, to derive qualities. Take your pick. Okay. Oh, oh, well, I, I mean, it's, that's a little bit of a prejudicial description because it, it sounds like <laughs> there's no problems in your in your position also. But let, let, let's 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 do that then. So we agree that there isn't solipsism. So we agree that there's things that exist outside of my consciousness and that takes yes. care of the problem that I didn't exist at one point and I won't exist at another point. And so the issue then I, I guess becomes I should there and the reason why people believe in the external world typically is they think of things going on outside of any human consciousness. Um, you know that there before you know before there were sentient beings, the earth was forming, the sun was forming. Uh, you know, things like that. Evolution was eventually going on, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And what they, the physicalists will then say is, well, when I look at reality, when I first come upon it, where there has not been any human beings, I don't see any evidence uh, for intelligence and I don't see any evidence for directed behavior. I don't see any evidence for what I typically need in order to attribute mind to something. So I don't attribute mind to my refrigerator normally because it doesn't have blah, 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 blah. It doesn't do all these things. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, and that's how I make distinctions between my mind and the dog's mind, et cetera, in terms of the behavioral consequences. And the physicalist says, well, it looks like most of the universe is behaving as if there is no mind. And what I would need for the cosmic mind is evidence outside of human consciousness of things that are mental-like in behavior. And that's exactly not what the universe seems to operate like. It seems to operate non-teleologically, non-intelligently. It seems to happen like really haphazardly. It's a, it doesn't have, seem to have even the basis of moral concerns or emotional attachment to anything. Why would I attribute mind to that? Okay. Uh, I don't think you're right when you say there is no evidence for that. But suppose you were right, that there is no evidence for us to attribute mind to the world. I would still say that is by far still the least problematic option, given what options are on the table. How do you produce qualities out of purely uh, quantitative properties? Or how do you merge uh, fundamentally yeah. different fields of experience? It's different. It's a different matter. I, I'm, this is coming down to intellectual taste. I mean, really, I mean, because what you're asking me to say that we that, you know, we have some our experience has some special role, like, you know, this is one of the criticisms made by speculative realists, you know, correlationism, that we're we're binding all of ontology uh, 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 to our particular uh, ontology. And that that seems like a, a, a really, uh, a really unjustifiable. I, I want to be able to talk about things having relations among themselves without me being around. Okay, I think I, I agree with that, right? I, I will answer that. I will answer that. Let me just very briefly insist on the point I made before. In the technical literature, there are papers, papers arguing that the problems faced by physicalism and panpsychism uh, leads to incoherence. And these are technical arguments made by different people. I, I've read those, I've read I've read a lot of these arguments too, right? Okay. And, and there are also people that counter those arguments. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's not it's not it's not fair for you to present it as, as a resolved debate or consensus. I don't think that, was, that's that's fair. There has been no uh, 
technical argument saying that analytic idealism is incoherent in principle. These arguments have been made for the other two options, but there is no in principle incoherence argument. For instance, for uh, constitutive panpsychism, the incoherent, uh, incoherence argument takes the, the following form. If fundamentally separate fields of subjectivity uh, experiencing different qualities were to merge, you would lose the original fields of experience. Like if, if the compound subject is seeing purple and the sub-subjects were seeing uh, red and blue, then they would subsume themselves into the higher level subject, which contradicts what the panpsychism is trying to do, which is to follow the rules of uh, chemical combinations in physicalism. Uh, the, the, the molecules that compose tissues don't disappear. Mm -hmm. So you have an argument like that. There isn't a technical argument claiming incoherence for analytic idealism. There may be, I find it very hard, but there may be. But still, let me grant you that, um, that I cannot use this line of arguments. And let's look at what you said. You said, um, for something to be minded, you, you need to care about relationships. You need to be emotionally bound to something. Solving problems even. Yeah. It, does a mosquito have those properties? Does a crocodile have all these properties you're alluding to? Can, can you envision that a water flea um, is a purely instinctive, uh, reactive, conscious being that does not have any of these experiential qualities that we have? A paramecium. I think paramecium has um, the sort of basic abilities of making sense, aspectualizing its environment. So it's, it, it relates to some things as food and some things as poison. And I think that aspectualization is continuous with how you're aspectualizing right now. You're seeing me as a man, you're seeing me as et cetera, et cetera. So okay. there's deep continuity between their capacity for aspectualization and mine, but that doesn't mean that they could aspectualize, right? Uh, everything that I can, because you, I don't have to attribute the same intelligence to them as I attribute to me. That's exactly my point. But can um, you attribute a lot simpler conscious in their life to them than you have? Like I think it would have none of the emotions you have. It wouldn't be anxious. It wouldn't fall in love. I think the paramecium uh, in some sense has to care about some information rather than the other. It wouldn't be my full-blown subjective experience of love. Uh, but, um, I, you know, there's many subjective ex emotions I have, like pride, that I don't think a dog has, but I think a dog okay. is nevertheless conscious. So I, I think a, a paramecium, I mean, that's one of the big differences uh, between us and between standard existing computers is we have to care about the information we're processing, um, and, and we, which means we devote attention and arousal. We dispose metabolic energy towards it. I think the paramecium is doing all of these things. Okay, so I, I'm with you that there is a continuum. I'm just Sorry. trying to establish that in that continuum, there is a point of much lower, much higher simplicity than, than where we are. That's the only thing I want to establish, that they can be conscious in their life with a lot more simplicity than the one we experience as human beings. And we mm -hmm. are both in a continuum. Okay, now, the paramecium has what philosophers call intentionality because there is something outside yeah, the paramecium yeah. that isn't the paramecium. Now, for the cosmic mind, there is nothing outside of it by definition, so it cannot have intentionality. 
So all its uh, conscious states have to be endogenous. And there, can, there can't be this actualization that you're talking about because there isn't an outside environment. So my, what I propose is it's very, in terms of emotions and qualities, it's much simpler in their life and it does not have intentionality. It's, a, it, it's purely endogenous, it's of a different kind. Now, is there evidence that that might be going on? Even if there weren't, I would say I still have the best theory on the table because the problems of the others are insurmountable. But recent research is showing two things and this is fresh out of the oven, one of them, not the first I would talk about. Um, there is a lot of study now showing that in terms of network topology, and I'm, I'm not talking about pretty images, pretty photographs, I'm talking about network topology, which is quantified and mathematized. There are surprising similarities between the network topology of the universe at its largest scales, you know, galaxy clusters and all that, mm. um, and uh, neuronal networks in mammals. Surprising. Yeah, that, that, that argument's been in existence for quite a while, Design in Nature, I forget the author of the book, he points out those that uh, formal similarity, but it's also similarity with you know how the, uh, how things branch in your in your lungs, how river deltas branch out, uh, uh, things like that. Recent research, uh, the, the the most recent one is done by an Italian neuroscientist and an Italian physician. Um, sorry, well, you an have Italian the physicist. You have the advantage on me, then I guess. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, Bernardo, is that not the, a moot point? Because if we had more cosmic data and we find out that the universe looks completely different from another point of view, you still wouldn't say that your theory is invalidated. So, in some no, sense, it's neither a, a no, pro no, nor a con. No. This is more than just what it looks like. That's what I'm trying to highlight. Quantitative studies have been done at the University of California at Irvine, I think in 2014, and there is this more uh, uh, recent research done by this Franco Varza and uh, Alberto Felletti, uh, these two guys. Uh, oh, I'm amazed I could retrieve that. <laughs> Normally I'm not that good. Mind at large has been kind to you. <laughs> Uh, this is a quantitative network structure and network topology analysis. Um, and it shows the similarity is really between neural networks and the universe. And it doesn't involve uh, the fractal patterns of arteries in our lungs or the fractal patterns of river deltas. It goes, it's much more specific than that. Now, there is a paper fresh out of the oven published by a physicist called Stephen forgot forgot uh, forgot his uh, his other name fresh are you, the are, you is, are these papers proposing that there's information processing going on in this structure i mean that's going to violate all kinds of relativistic uh, limitations no, no, no. etc no no okay so before i talk about stephen's paper first this because it's a good point uh, of course there is information processing what you don't have is closed loops of information because the age of the universe is not not long enough for information to to go across galaxy, galaxy clusters and, and close a loop. Uh, there, there hasn't been enough time for that to happen. Um, so what you cannot have is Tononi's uh, information integration phi topologies. There hasn't been time for that, which only means that the universe is then not self-reflective, <laughs> but it can still be phenomenally conscious or it can be phenomenal conscious consciousness because the, the, the latter does not require this closed loops of information integration for which you are right, there has not been time. But information processing in a feed forward manner of course, that's happening all the time. And it's the universe is an information processing engine. Actually, there is a whole field of physics called digital physics, which is based entirely on, 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 on this postulate. But the, the paper of Stephen, 
and it's amazing. Um, it, it's beginning of research. There's a long way to go. But what he's showing is that the laws of physics may correspond in terms of model, models, may correspond to the weights of uh, neurons in a neural network, that the universe may be learning uh, its laws of physics. So, I, John, if you say this is all circumstantial, I will be the first to jump and agree with you. But okay. you put me on the spot of, of producing this kind of, this kind of argument. Sure, sure, said, sure. Is there I, any evidence? And then I would say, well, yeah, there is. <laughs> there actually is. And it's evidence that we are so confused about it, we cannot make sense of it. We do not know why uh, galaxy clusters look more like uh, uh, a neuron then they look like the interior of a galaxy. Why should that, that be the case? There is nothing in our, in our understanding of nature that would suggest why this relationship is there at all. That it is there and that its information processing can actually be modeled as the weights of a artificial neural network in the process of learning. But only a feed forward. Yeah, but only a feed-forward artificial network, which is exactly the point you just made, which means it can't have a lot of the properties that we find in any networks that do feedback loops on themselves. Correct. It isn't even, it isn't even capable of doing Hitton's deep learning or anything like that. Correct. Because you have, right? And so, the, I mean, so this is going to be a pretty, uh, sorry, I don't mean to be insulting to your view. I'm not, okay? That's a pretty stupid uh, consciousness, um, and it has no intentionality. I mean, and so you're talking about a mind without intention without intent, what you said, without intentionality and without even rudimentary intelligence. I mean, well, 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 be careful, be careful. There are methods of neural network uh, uh, learning, which are only feed forward, particularly unsupervised uh, learning techniques that do not require this deep feedback uh, mechanism. So you can still have some intelligence. But remember, I started today by saying I am a naturalist. I'm just being consistent with it. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and, and I want to I won't get into the technicalities because then you have learning speed problems and you have self-correction problems and debugging problems, which is why, you know, we plausibly have meta consciousness and, and meta intelligence, right? We can use our intelligence to improve our intelligence. Uh, we learn literacy, for example, that improves our capacity for problem solving. Um, like, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what comes down to it is uh, I, I'm not quite sure what the difference is now because I've got something out there uh, that's no intentionality, which is unlike what I experience. I mean, I, I, let, let, let me be fair to you. I do experience states in deep meditation that are, that are states without intentionality and for, for which you could plausibly say I'm not exercising any significant degree of intelligence. And those are the pure consciousness events and they're reliable. I've, I've achieved, That's, that sounds like an achievement. Sorry. I've been in those states multiple times. I know there's lots of research, Foreman has done it. Um, and there's lots of things on that. Um, is that the kind of thing what people, I mean, I know it's not exactly the same, but I'm trying to get something from within what I normally point to with consciousness. Is that the kind of consciousness you see for <clears throat> mind at large, the kind of consciousness <clears throat> without intentionality and intelligence I have in pure consciousness event in which I'm not even conscious of my consciousness, I'm just conscious? Is, is it something like that? 
Yes, just just a quick uh, uh, a clarification. When I use the, the the term intentionality, I mean it in a technical sense. Intentionality. I, I do not, too. I mean uh, about. I mean aboutness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah okay. And, okay. Then we are aligned. And, and, and that and that is lost in the PC uh, PCE. That's one yeah, of by, that's by yeah, definition. By definition, there cannot be intentionality because there is no aboutness. There is only the thing. By definition, there is no outside. Intentionality but arises the, when you. But we achieve intentionality. Yeah, because there is an outside world. An outside world is created once you have a boundary. I would say that boundary is the dissociative boundary. It's the dissociation that creates the distinction between the inside and the outside. And now you can have intentionality or aboutness because there is something outside that you don't identify yourself with. So intentionality emerges out of non-intentional yeah. states. Through dissociation. Again, but you know that the problem of intentionality is regarded as deeply a, a problem for physicalism as the problem of consciousness. How do you get something like intentionality out of the physical universe that is non-intentional, right? In, intentional content. No, no, uh, the existence of the, the existence of intentionality. I mean, so the big problems are consciousness, intentionality, right? How do you get, I mean, that's what I think is actually going on, by the way, and I think it, in, in Searle's Chinese room argument, Searle often describes it that way, is how do I get intentionality? How do I get the things inside the room to be about things outside the room? And, and he attributes that to consciousness, but obviously that's not what you're claiming because the universal consciousness, sorry, I keep changing the names on you. That's unfair. <laughs> it's the, okay. the, the, it's okay. the mind at large um, doesn't have intentionality. So it's no different than the Chinese room, right? Because it doesn't have intentionality. No, because remember, I mentioned to you that my interpretation of uh, Searle's thought experiment was that what's missing is consciousness. Uh, and here uh, we but what the consciousness supplies is intentionality. That's why Searle claims again and again, it's an argument about meaning. All the syntax is there, but as okay. he says, there's no semantics there. Yes. It's the intentionality, right? Yeah, but notice now that I am already starting with phenomenal consciousness. So that problem of intentionality you don't have. Because but how does consciousness produce intentionality? Don't you have that problem? Because consciousness no, it, at large doesn't have intentionality. But once there is a dissociative boundary, then there is an outside state of the world and there is an in inside state of the altar. Through evolution, you will start trying to represent outside states into inner states because that's how you survive. Now, that right. representation will never be mirrored because otherwise you would dissolve into an, into an entropic soup. We've known that since 10 years. No, no, no. I, I, think, I, I think I'm not presenting. How would I give a machine the capacity for intentionality? The moment, oh, no, but now, now you're, you're not thinking within the framework of what I'm putting forward. If you're assuming the machine is not consciousness, conscious. No, no, but you've comes. already admitted that consciousness that base consciousness doesn't have intentionality. Yes. So you, you don't get to have intentionality coming along for the ride Correct. with consciousness. That's yes. unfair. Yeah, I need but an additional consciousness. Yeah, that's okay. what I'm trying to explain. So you okay. start with consciousness. So now what you have to explain is having started with phenomenal consciousness, how does intentionality arise? How does it arise? Because it's better to survive if you can represent the external environment into inner states, the organism will do that. And these inner states will then be phenomenal states. What else can they be? I'm saying that everything is in consciousness. Then they will, that's how intentionality arises. No, no, that's a teleological explanation. That's no, telling me that, no, no, it's not telling me 
how it arises ontologically. It's telling me how it arises teleologically. It's like, well, how does the eye work? Well, there was evolution and natural selection selected for things that had vision, and that's how vision arose. Okay. No, mechan- no, that, okay. that's not that's not what I'm asking for. The mechan- what you're asking for is how did sensory organs uh, evolve? You are asking for a mechanism for that, and I would yeah. say the answer is the same. No, no, I'm not asking, because the answer for how my eye evolved is the same answer for how my foot evolved, natural selection variation. But that doesn't mean that my foot functions according to the same principles that my eye does. I want to know the different things. I don't want to know the history. I want to know the structural functional organization that makes it causally possible. That's what I was trying to say. You will represent external states into inner states. Representation invokes intentionality. You're invoking the very thing you're trying to explain. Because what's the difference between a representation and a non-representation is that a representation possesses intentionality. Then then the, uh, the question you're asking is, how did the first sensory organ arose? Because that's wanna, what does the representation. I want to, that's what does the representation. That doesn't tell me how representation works. You're, t- you're pointing me to the say. thing. What I'm trying to say is the answer to your question is the same answer that the physicalist would give you because it's the same process. Is how did sensorium arise? How did it happen? Well, we, we have evolutionary biologists studying that. How would the inner states of an organism represent the outer states of the world around it? So I don't need a consciousness explanation, therefore, to explain how intentionality emerges out of consciousness. I can give no. a completely physicalist mechanism because that's what evolution is. No. It's a completely. You can give a purely physical explanation if you already started with consciousness, because that's what solves the problem Searle was was referring to. I, I, I don't see that. Because you said the base consciousness doesn't have intentionality, so yes. you don't get. So I need a mechanism of how something without intentionality gets intentionality, and then you offer me evolution, which is a completely okay. physicalist explanation. Which means I don't need physical. I don't need consciousness to explain okay. how I okay. get intentionality out of consciousness. Let me try it another way. Try it another way. So let's forget consciousness. Let's talk purely in physical terms. Is it okay that we say? Um, physical organisms, very simple life, three and a half billion years ago, uh, evolved so to represent physical states of the world outside into internal states. I is think that's fair? a very hard problem. I, like knowing but how that happened. works. Is... But you accept it happened? Yes. Okay. Now, if we accept that this happened, what is the problem remaining? The problem remaining is that those internal physical states are not conscious. So there isn't intentionality. But what I'm saying is that the physicality is the extrinsic appearance of what's going on. But the intrinsic view, the thing in itself, those internal states are phenomenal states because they cannot be anything else. No, no. The problem is that intentionality doesn't... I, I, I think this is a problem also for physicalism. But, but I'm right. So I, 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 I think you're mistaking what I'm trying to do, right? Intentionality is not like any. It's not like any physical. I mean, this is Brian Kentwell Smith. I can be an intentional relationship to things that I can to things outside the light cone. I just did it. I thought about it. That's the intent. That's what it's about. But I'm not in causal relationship. I can't be with things outside the light cone. I can think about Napoleon, and I can't be in causal relationship with him because he doesn't exist right, anymore. Right. Intentionality is not, you can't, it's not reducible to causation in any kind of easy fashion. And so I don't think you can just say consciousness without intentionality, some causal process, and then intentionality. 
As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the Best Sellers Trial Pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. I, analytic idealism doesn't solve scientific problems. It provides <laughs> an interpretation to scientific I, 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 the problem of intention, I think the problems. problem of intention, I think intentionality is a philosophical problem. But what uh, you described as intentionality just now, like Napoleon and what's happening beyond the event horizon of the, the cone yeah. of the universe that we can see because the light has already arrived at, at where we are, um, that's more complex than I think the normal definition of intentionality in philosophy, which is just uh, associated with perception. Uh, 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 an I, conscious state that reflects. I don't, I don't agree with outside. that. You just, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe we're, maybe we move in different philosophical circles. The part of philosophy that overlaps with Cogsci is really, really concerned. Uh, like, take a look at like Brian Cantwell Smith. He's a colleague of mine at the University of Toronto, and you know, uh, all of third wave, uh, you know, cognitive science is deeply influenced by phenomenology, and so Husserl's notions of intentionality. Uh, which are supposed to do deal with things like this um, are also pertinent issues, and I and I think uh, that, you know that's what Searle's talking about. He's talking about the kind of intentionality that is born in a language. That's why he uses the example of Chinese, right? He's not talking about just simple perceptual. He's talking about the kind of intentionality that's born in Chinese. I, I assume that Chinese people can talk about Napoleon and they can talk about things outside the light cone. I, I'm probably missing something in your argument. I, I, I don't see the problem. Once the inner states are conscious states, associations will be established through learning between your inner states and your model Associ of the you, world you can't outside. Get intention you can't get intentionality out of association. This is one of the problems that bedevils neural networks. When neural networks are firing, these two nodes are firing. John, these three nodes, John, Love, and Mary, they're all right associated with each other. But that, that can't distinguish between Mary loves John and John loves Mary, yeah. which is an intentional difference. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a still an existing problem for neural networks that hasn't been solved. Right? I think that's a uh, representation problem because neural networks in silicon, as we do them to, today, digital neural networks, uh, they don't have uh, symbolic anchoring to, to, the, to the thing that is perceived. Everything is encoded in bytes, uh, which are symbols. Uh, there, is a, there is work done by a, a, an AI researcher 17 years ago, 
begun 17 years ago, Penti Haikonen. He used to work at Nokia Research, and he wrote a series of books about conscious computers. I think they are flawed philosophically, but he makes this point clearly that if you preserve a semantic anchoring between the inner representations of the computer and the origin of that signal from a certain quality of perception, that problem is solved. The problem arises because you, we encode things arbitrarily. No, 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 no. That you don't, Sorry, you I have to interject as a moderator. Before we go forward, some people are, are saying rightly so that they know plenty more about Bernardo's position than they do about yours, John. And that's because Bernardo's is so outside the norm for us, for the majority of people that it's more interesting well, to hear in I many think ways. I think it's also credit to how well he articulates and defends his position. I think we should give credit to him. It's not just, thank you, uh, sir. <laughs> yeah, it's not just that it's uh, uh, less familiar or novel. I think he's actually also, you know, I, I also think so. So John, do you mind giving the audience a background as to what you believe exists ontologically or what your philosophical point of view is? Well, I tried to do that at the beginning, um, and, there, and 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 part of the reason why I think Bernardo and I are not just shouting at each other is that there are, there are overlaps between our ontologies in certain ways. Um, so I describe myself as a naturalist, um, which means, uh, as I said, I'm not a materialist because I don't think that everything's made out of matter. I think that's a that's a ridiculous claim. Um, um, and I don't think you can do science with from materialism. I think scientists who claim they're materialists are engaging in performative contradiction. I think scientists have to invoke uh, non-spatio-temporal relations uh, to do science, and Berman and others have argued that, and therefore uh, trying to reduce it even to causal relations uh, and spatio-temporal relations, I think, can't explain how you do science. Um, I do think that uh, everything we do has to be consistent with what our science, and I don't think Bernardo was disagreeing with that either. So I completely think, agree. Okay, uh, so thank you, Bernardo. Uh, so I, my position is, and, and again, I'm not, I, I, I'm not isolated any more than Bernardo is. I think he's a little bit more of a pioneer right now, and I'll give him credit for that. Uh, but there are many people um, outside of, like I would say, like neuroscience and things like that within cognitive science, and that's the only audience I'm, I'm really that conversant with, who would agree with uh, what's called the non-reductive physicalism. And this is the idea that you have to count the layers at which we are doing our science, the layers, and these are just metaphors, by the way, the layers at which we're doing science as real as any other layer we point to with our science, because you get into all kinds of contradictions if you don't. So I think this world that I'm experiencing right now is as real as the world of quantum probabilities, for example. And and the pro and then you and the, and the reason with that is, like if you drop down to that level, you lose all the differences that are required for science and required for knowledge and required for information. Blah blah blah. I can do that in, in at more length, but I'm not trying to defend it right now. I'm just trying to describe it. I'm just trying to show you though that it it does come out of reasoning and argumentation, right? And so, I think that there and unlike many people, so this is where I'm a bit of a pioneer. I'm much more of a Neoplatonist. I think we have to talk about equally about emergence and emanation. I think there's ways in which real, in which uh, the possibilities of form are really structured. And I don't equate actuality with reality. That's the influence of Eastern thinking on me. I think that possibility, we have to treat possibility just as real as actuality. And we do this with things like potential energy and stuff like that anyway, and laws. What are laws? Laws aren't events, they're not actions. They're real constraints on what can happen. They're real, and so 
as much as there is emergence bottom up from the physical substrata, there's emanation down from the non-spatial non temporal sets of constraints on possi possibility. And some people say that that's sort of cryptically Whitehead's God or something like that. I don't know if I have to go there, but I would say it's something like the Neoplatonic one. And, you know, and that's not really that strange. If you look, you know, if you look at the history, if you look at people, you know, John Spencer's work on the internal law and other people like that, a lot of the people that brought about the revolutions that we're talking about right now in science uh, or that we're pursuing, so in our discussion about science, a lot of them had direct, like explicit connections to Neoplatonism or similar things, or they had connections to like well, Einstein with Spinoza and Spinoza is deeply in the Neoplatonic tradition. He uses, uh, you know, he basically co-opts Proclus's elements of theology for the structure that he uses for the ethics and things like that. Um, so what I'm saying is, although I, I, I don't, I want to be clear. I'm not. I, I don't present that position. Uh, a position you see in people like John Scottus Erigena of the complete, complete interpenetration as um, the consensus position. I want to say that there are, there have been uh, notable people within the history, even the recent history of science, that have had uh, this position, and very important people in the history of philosophy, the whole Neoplatonic tradition. Um, uh, especially post-Plotinus, uh, John Scottus Erigena as an example. So I think that reality is understood in the way our cognition works, uh, simultaneously bottom-up and top-down fashion, that there are, are bottom-up uh, causal interactions, top-down uh, constraints, which aren't causes, um, and they afford all of the structural functional organization that accounts for most of the phenomena that are uh, in dispute here. Um, I do think, for example, uh, and I haven't, I haven't tried to make that argument here. People can look at it. I have a, an existing series out there, Untangling the World Knot with Greg Enriquez. I do think you can fatten up access consciousness uh, so that you can get a lot of phenomenal consciousness out of it. Uh, so one of the main things I argue is that if you give a system intelligence and you give it relevance realization, you're giving it foregrounding and backgrounding of information, you're giving it aspectualization, you're giving it a lot of what I call the adverbial quality of the here, the here-ness and the now-ness and the togetherness of consciousness, which is not the same thing as the standard qualia of blueness and greenness and yellowness and things like that. And the thing that's interesting about those adverbial qualia is unlike the adjectival qualia, they don't disappear in the pure consciousness event. They're still there. People describe the here-ness as presence, the nowness as eternity, and the togetherness is absolute unity. Um, so the adverbial qualia seem to be necessary and sufficient for consciousness, and the adjectival qualia that get so many of these arguments going, I think, aren't necessary and sufficient for consciousness. I don't think that means they're unproblematic. I don't think I've solved that problem, but what I think I, I, I would argue is that we can thicken up access consciousness to get a lot of the phenomenology uh, of our consciousness, and that makes me not so convinced that we won't be able to cross the gap even more like we have with life and with intelligence. So that's my position. Now, I am not, I hope I didn't come across arrogant enough to claim that I have a foreclosure argument and that therefore uh, I think Bernardo's insane or his position is not intellectually respectable, far from it. I wouldn't be doing this if I thought that, but you were asking me to state what my position is and that's where my position is. And, and so one, one more thing, Bernardo. Um, I, I, like I said, I, 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 I want to be able to explain what I think is the base state of consciousness for us, and that for Bernardo said it might be the best analog for cosmic 
mind, which is the pure consciousness event. And like I said, that that seems to be completely the reason why we don't blank out and lose memory of it is because it's not absolutely absent of content. It has no representational, conceptual, propositional content. It has no adjectival content, but it does have hereness, nowness, togetherness. It does have the adverbial um, aspects. And so I take those to be something for which we might be able to get an overlapping explanation between them and how intelligence works in terms of relevance realization. And many of the people, uh, you know, uh, you know, bars is explicit that the, the function of consciousness is higher order relevance realization. Working memory, Lynn Hasher is higher order relevance realization. Tononi, well, his isn't about relevance realization. Yeah, if you ask him for his test of, intel of consciousness, it's a test for relevance realization, a test for appropriateness, blah, 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 blah. Same thing with Clearman's and his caring, higher order caring for lower order representations. All the higher order ones, because they can't be inferential, uh, involve some kind of uh, appropriateness or relevance thing. So uh, a lot of the access models are already, are already converging on relevance realization. And I think you can thicken that up, if you'll allow me a metaphor, uh, to get a lot more of the phenomenology. Uh, that's my position. And um, now the, the thing about that is, that could, the, the, the thing that's kind of like going like this between Bernardo and I is, uh, suppose I, that turned out to be right. Bernardo could still make his arguments. Right? His argument, I don't, I don't think his arguments ultimately would be defeated if that turned out to be right, uh, because he, see, he, he seems to be running them, and I don't mean seem in the pernicious sense, it, I'm just saying it, it is my judgment that he seems to be running them on, to, on, on the basis of sort of more fundamental features. Um, and so that's what I've been trying to get clear about. I hope that was fair to you, Bernardo. I hope that wasn't a misrepresentation. Can I ask a couple of clarifying questions, uh, John? Sure. So do, do I understand correctly that um, um, adverbial qualia can be reduced to pure non-phenomenal access conscious in your consciousness in your view? Yeah, I think, well, although part of what I'm trying to do is undermine uh, the, the, the clean distinction, and other people have noted, the, noted this for Block, right? The clean distinction between access and phenomenal consciousness. Um, because people have pointed out, well, it, it, there, it, there seems to be something it's it is like to access, right, or, or to be poised. And I take poisedness, which is the defining feature of access consciousness, to be a, 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 a metaphor for very sophisticated relevance realization. That's what I take it to mean, that I will bring out of my long-term memory what's most appropriate, and I will structure it in my working memory so that it best fits the environment, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, but you do think we should be able, in principle at least, to reduce adverbial qualia to non-phenomenal access consciousness? If by what you reduce is that I would be able to give an explanation of how it arises out of something that is, yeah. that, that's what I mean by it. Uh, that doesn't mean that I think it's ontologically reducible for reasons I've already given, uh, but yes. Oh, so it could be that that entity that's performing access consciousness has adverb adverbial qualia as fundamental properties of it, <coughs> at least in potentiality. It, yeah, yes. So I, I, that, that I, would make a panpsychist of you. Um, <coughs> it depends. I mean, and this is a debate. A deba and again, and we've had this debate. And I don't know if we'll resolve it. 
I, I mean, it makes me a deep continuity theorist. Um, and where, uh, whereas, again, is that is that enough of a difference of degree that it's a difference in kind, etc. And so I take it that the, the difference between the deep continuity. I mean, and I've had debates with JP uh, more so about this, and he is a panpsychist, although he seems to be loosening that. Um, that uh, that there's a difference between panpsychism and deep continuity. Um, in, so that the explanatory principles might be the same, but that doesn't mean the entity is the same. And, and, and we, we do sort of countenance that idea because we use the same explanatory principles for things that exist at different scales, for example, even spatio-temporally, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, right. and, the, and regarding um, um, adjectival uh, uh, qualia, you yeah. think those are more problematic? Yes, I do, I do. And <laughs> what I do think um, is that we, so this is a meta critique. I think we are holding the topic of consciousness a hostage to adjectival qualia when we have clear evidence for states of consciousness, if that's the right word, like the pure consciousness event, in which adjectival qualia are not present. And I think if we had adjectival qualia without the adverbial qualia, we would have a genuine Humean monster. We would have no togetherness, here-ness, now-ness uh, to these experiences, and we would have the Humean uh, the human monster of these completely atomic blips of qualia. Uh, and I don't think that would constitute a consciousness anymore. They, that would still leave a, 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 yeah, a, a problem there. But the integration problem would still be there. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I think I understand your view. Um, I do think the burden of argument is more on you because you would have them to explicitly make sense of how uh, at least adverbial qualia can emerge from non-qualia simply because of a kind of access configuration. Um, I understand that this is where you were leaning. Um, I would point out that uh, Giulio Tononi himself has come out biting the bullet and say, fine, fine, ITT, uh, IIT uh, uh, presupposes panpsychism. So he sort of yeah, acknowledged yeah. that. Oh, well, I think it's because there are a lot of the, the problems. Well, this goes to another issue. Um, and, um, oh, sh crap, I was supposed to end at three o'clock. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, no, I don't want to make the move where I say something. Uh, but uh, I mean, I think there's deep connections between the hard problem of consciousness and the hard problem of relevance. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence that all the, all, uh, most of the theories of the functionality of consciousness are converging on the relevance realization idea. Um, and I mean, I make that argument. Um, and, and then I do think that there's important overlap between, I've already argued this, between intelligence and consciousness in some fashion. But I, I agree with you, it's not an intelligence that has anything like intentionality or meta-reflective capacities. And I think that has to be something like a base relevance realization ability that we get um, uh, with adverbial qualia. So I'm trying to close the explanatory gap. Okay, and let's close this video as well. seems like you got to get going. I don't want to, I don't want to sneak in a last word like that against Bernardo. I want to give yeah, him yeah. a chance to respond. No, but my, my, my last word is uh, for you. <laughs> Um, regardless of whatever ontological differences uh, we seem to have, John and I, 
I, I think our mission is 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 the same, uh, or the, the reason why we are doing what we do is to address the meaning crisis. I, I don't use yeah. that term, but ultimately, uh, um, I think uh, we are big uh, buddies, uh, John. We are allies yeah. uh, in yeah. what we are trying to accomplish. Yeah, and there's a lot about what you say that I think is really important. I, I mean, I don't ultimately agree with you on some points, but I think you can see that there's important ways in which I am really significantly modifying the standard ontology to try and address some of your concerns. Clearly. So at least I at least think I'm responsible to your concerns. I, I know you don't have to, you, I'm not asking you to agree with me, but I am asking you to see that I am responsible to your concerns. I, I acknowledge that and I appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for saying that. I want to thank you both. I'm, I'm incredibly blessed and I'm so lucky that I get to be a vessel for or a cup for your holy water or your manna, <laughs> at least temporarily. So thank you so much for that. I want to let the audience know about where to find out more about you just in a second. I also should let the audience know, I've been told I need to mention this quite a bit more about, I have a Patreon and I always feel slimy and filled with discomposure when I talk about that. But some people say, just advertise it more. So if you want to see more conversations like this, where there are cognoscentes like Bernardo and John duking it out, but also at the same time, loving one another in their own yeah. manner, please, yeah. please do visit patreon.com slash Kurt It Every dollar and literally every dollar helps, every patron helps, and it helps me extremely, not only financially, but motivationally too. To, to know that there are some people that voluntarily, they don't have to pay. You'll get this content no matter what, but they support it. And that's, I'm, well, thank you so much. With that said, I wanted to talk to you all about Jesus and Buddha and what's the difference and are they compatible? <laughs> I, and the, what about God and free will? And there are quite a few more questions. I, I, I think I, I'm I got happy. to two or I'm three. Happy. I'm happy to talk with Bernardo again. Me I'm too. Very happy. It's been a delight. And uh, yes, John is my much. brother, my brother in arms. So let's <laughs> yeah, do yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, very much. I'd be happy to talk with him again. Great. We'll arrange that again. And if anyone wants to know where to find out more about you, John, and then Bernardo, where do they go? Uh, the best thing, I mean, other than, you know, doing academic search on Google Scholar for my papers is, you know, go onto YouTube, uh, go onto my channel, uh, look at Awakening from the Meeting Crisis, uh, which is about the meeting crisis, of course. Uh, you can take a look at uh, a, 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 a dialogical series I did with Greg Enriquez about consciousness called Untangling the World Knot. Uh, by the way, Bernardo, that's a that's a reference to Schopenhauer, uh, right? Untangling <laughs> yeah. the World Knot of Consciousness. Um, and then I'm currently doing one called The Elusive Eye, The Nature and Function of the Self uh, with uh, Greg Enriquez again and Christopher Master Pietro. Uh, so that would be so. And then if you want to see more of these kinds of dialogues on my channel, I have an ongoing dialogical series called Voices with Reveki, where I try to exemplify how we can weave together argumentation and genuine dialogos. Bernardo. Just go to bernardocastrop.com. There's a lot of free stuff uh, linked from there. Okay, great. And if you all want, I can give you the video files for this once it's up on our site if you want to use it as extra content on yours you're more than welcome to thank, thank you, you so like much that. again thank you this was far different in, in a positive manner than i expected it to be i'm glad that i took a back seat because it's mainly about like i said theo maki but also theo locution so thank you all. I, I, i'm, I'm happy us. that you were yeah and i wanted to thank you you helped us to steer out of getting locked into local minima that I thought was <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> you were very helpful for both of us. 
So thank you, <laughs> and thank you, yeah, Bernardo. Thank you. Great, ple great pleasure meeting you. Great pleasure indeed. Enormous pleasure from my side as well, John. Great to meeting you and getting to know you. Let's do this again. I'm happy to do so. And not, not Thanks, that. Kurt. I love Don. I love Don Hoffman, but I'm actually I'm glad that he wasn't here because it would be far too many voices, and it was great to see you all get to know one another and try and understand each other's viewpoints. Thank yeah. you. Excellent. Take care, everybody. I got to take go. care. Have take some care. chocolate, John. Bye bye. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Bye.